Well, good morning uh, to everybody, and uh, some of our members are still coming in, but um, uh, Mr. Morrison, our witnesses here, we thank you. Uh, I want to welcome everybody uh, for coming here, and again, thank the Hudson Institute for hosting uh, today's meeting and for uh, their support since uh, we began our work in 2014. Thanks also uh, to the folks without whom we would not be here, which is the charitable donors we have, uh, most particularly the uh, Open Philanthropy Foundation. Um, three years ago, uh, this panel released uh, our national blueprint for biodefense. It was born out of our shared concern that not enough was being done to address the threats posed to our country by biological events of two uh, major kinds. The first, um, which I've learned a lot about in this experience and actually uh, learned enough to be much more worried than I was before I started, is an infectious disease pandemic. And the second, of course, is a bioterrorist attack. Uh, in our blueprint, our blueprint report, um, we reviewed the totality of the federal government's biodefense efforts, uh, found them, frankly, lacking in many ways that we documented in the report and made 33 uh, recommendations of, about how to improve them, recommendations which we believe, believe then, believe now, provide a roadmap to improving how we prepare for, uh, defend against, and respond to uh, biological threats of both kinds I've mentioned. Some of our recommendations apply to the whole of government, others to specific federal uh, programs and agencies. We assign timelines uh, for um, completing each of the 87 action items associated with our 33 recommendations, based obviously on when we felt they could reasonably be completed. So today, our panel uh, will look at how far uh, the government has come in implementing uh, those uh, recommendations uh, that we believe should have been completed in the three years since the blueprint in uh, 2015. Th this is the beginning of our assessment of, of the uh, implementation of the recommendations in, in our report. Uh, our review will culminate in a progress report, which we uh, will release uh, early next year. In this, um, I would say we are keeping the promise we made to each other, really, on the panel uh, when we began that this was not going to be another um, Washington report that was issued and then we walked away, but that uh, the subject matter here was important enough that we were going to stay together and advocate uh, for our report's implementation and that's what we uh, have been able to do and we will uh, continue to do. I welcome all of our speakers, particularly um, pleased to welcome the federal representatives uh, who are here today, both on our panels and uh, in the audience. And I, I do want to note the absence of one of the members of our panel for cause. Uh, Donna Shalala is not here because she was elected to be in the House of Representatives uh, uh, next year. I asked our, uh, as we met briefly before, I, I wanted to ask my colleagues to what extent they thought her service on this panel was responsible for her being elected. And uh, Congressman Greenwood said uh, she overcame it to be 
elected. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, it's really she she has extraordinary experience, of course, uh, both as a cabinet secretary and um, more recently as a president of the University of Miami. But she was a, she's been a great member of the commission, and at a minimum, we know that we have an extremely informed advocate for uh, biodefense concerns in the uh, incoming uh, Congress. Uh, with that, uh, I would, I'm happy to call on my co-chair in this work and my dear friend, Governor Tom Ridge. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator. Just a few brief introductory remarks. Welcome all. See many familiar faces and some new faces, so we're delighted you join us today. A couple quick thoughts, if I might. Uh, when we embarked on this journey about three three years ago, uh, when Senator Lieberman initially called me, we agreed that there were a couple of really important characteristics that needed to be associated with this group. It had to be uh, bipartisan from the get-go, and I'm proud to say the three Republicans, the three Democrats, uh, find common cause to deal with a real threat is a good model for the men and women on the Hill to follow uh, in the future. Um, men and women of goodwill identifying a problem, sitting down, talking and resolving differences. It's quite a, quite a remarkable process and progress has been made substantially. Part of that progress is manifested in uh, a couple of our speakers today. We'll have someone from the White House. Tim Morrison is going to talk to us a little bit about the national strategy. But when we got together, the six of us said none of us wanted to be involved in just another report that gathered dust. There are all kinds of Washington reports on shelves that do nothing but accumulate dust. So we had some very specific recommendations. We said we wanted short, intermediate, and long term. And what the strategy has done, and again, we had champions, Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate, in the Obama administration, now we have champions within the Trump administration, and the strategy document itself embraces at least two dozen directly or indirectly of our recommendations. And there's more to follow, but just the strategy alone embraces almost two-thirds of the recommendations that we put forward, for which we are very, very grateful. And it's, the process is just beginning, but we think this is the most significant step. You need a strategy, you need cross cross-budget cuts so we know exactly where all these dollars are flowing. Uh, we need to know where we need to close, where we need to aggregate, where we need to increase. But it's an incredibly important first step. The threat is real. It's not sexy. Nobody's talking about it. But the fact of the matter is the natural threats, we've seen it, Zika, Ebola, got it. Uh, maybe a terrorist or a nation state We'll deal with ricin or anthrax or something else. And we know full well the nation states are violating the, chem the chemical and biological weapons ban. And so uh, we also know that we've got a, lab a lot of laboratories in this country working on these issues. And so the threat could be as a result of an accident. So whether it's natural, whether it's generated by man, by design, or it's accidental, it's a real problem. And I'm just uh, pleased we're now in a position, particularly with our first speaker, to be talking about now how we go forward as a country based on the good work of a bipartisan group and a very dedicated staff over three years to say, okay, here's what we've seen, here's what we concluded, here's what we think we need to get done in the next couple of years. So it's also been a great pleasure for me to be 
co-chairing it with my friend Senator Lieberman. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Governor. Feeling is mutual. Senator Dashiell. Thank you, Senator Lieberman. And uh, let me just say I, I want to uh, associate myself with the remarks of both of our co-chairs this morning. Uh, they've eloquently and, and very uh, articulately uh, pointed out uh, the purpose of, of this effort and, uh, and our progress to date. I think this is going to be a very productive day, and one of the reasons why is that the White House is represented here today and uh, with the presence of Director Morrison, and I welcome him in particular. Uh, as we enter a new Congress, I can't think of a more critical time to evaluate the progress made in defending this country against our biological threats. Biosurveillance and biodetection are particularly challenging, and I'm glad we're going to be discussing these very important topics today. Bioterrorism is not a thing of the distant past. The recent recent letters sent to the White House and the Pentagon show that clearly, as does the ongoing difficulty in preventing the spread of Ebola, detecting and intercepting biological threats before they've had a chance to spread is of utmost importance. We all recognize that, and that's why we're here today. Assistant Secretary McDonnell is here to address the state of BioWatch and the National Biosurveillance uh, Integration System in particular, and what steps he is taking to address our recommendations and the concerns of all stakeholders. Ms. Godfrey is here to share previous and current findings by the GAO regarding these programs. And Dr. Shukat uh, from CDC will talk about the role her agency plays in early identification and notification of biological threats like Ebola and Zika. So we've got a lot to cover and, uh, and, a, and a very productive day in store. And I, I again reiterate, as my co-chairs have, how important it is that you're here and uh, how much we appreciate your commitment and your involvement and uh, the interest that you showed by your presence this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Congressman Greenwood. Thank you, Joe, and welcome, Mr. Marshall. Thank you very much for being here. Um, I'm here by virtue of my role as the president and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. And so a number of our companies are involved in making vaccines and also making counter medical countermeasures against uh, diseases as well as bio, uh, potential bioterror events. Um, the perspective that, that I bring to this panel, particularly on behalf of those uh, member companies, is uh, the role of innovation and uh, how challenging, how critical it is to, to our ability to protect society from these events, um, but also how difficult it is. 90% of our companies fail and 90% of their projects fail. Uh, and yet, even with that, you know, sort of relatively dismal success rate, they have to attract investors, knowing and those investors knowing that they'll lose their shirts nine out of ten times. And this is hard enough, just in the regular realm of of, of medicines that are purchased by the healthcare system. But it's particularly uh, daunting when we're talking about these kinds of products, which are essentially only purchased um, well, for the most part by the federal government. And so their uh, ability to have some certainty as to what it is the government wants them to innovate and then uh, how much help they're going to have in that process uh, in terms of finances and the bureaucratic procedures, and then the certainty that these measures will actually be acquired um, by the government all lead to the ability and the willingness of investors to, to make, make, make that that, take that risk. Um, what we haven't spent a lot of time talking about is the diagnostic side of it. How do we we have these measures at, uh, at the ready? Uh, hopefully, how quickly can we in fact diagnose 
what we're looking at, whether it's on the battlefield, whether it's uh, in hospitals when people all of a sudden unexpectedly arrive, when it's some catastrophic event out in the in, in society. And so we're very much interested in um, looking into that and how those those challenges um, will affect the diagnostics manufacturers as well as they do the the um, the, the, the countermeasures. And so um, we're very much looking forward to ex officio members uh, George Post's uh, comments and testimony on this, and also um, uh, looking forward to hearing from uh, Dr. Jeffrey Ling, who's the founding director of uh, the DOD Biological Technologies Office, um, eager to hear his experiences and discuss where much-needed innovations can help medical countermeasure and diagnostics development. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Jim Weinstein, former Homeland Security Advisor. Ken. Ken, excuse me. And I'll be Jim Greenwood. Greenwood uh, <laughs> just so mesmerized me that I couldn't get his name out of my mind. <laughs> I'll answer to anything. Okay. Uh, good morning, and uh, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I actually, I, uh, these meetings are a highlight of my calendar whenever I look forward to uh, down the, the road to the calendar. Oh, thank you. Um, this is why you have a senator next to you to teach you the ropes. <laughs> Turn on the button. Um, but I look forward to these whenever I see them on the calendar because they're, they're fascinating. But I particularly for, look forward to them when we have a day like today where we're able to mark some seeming progress, um, uh, some movement ahead. And I, talking about the, the strategy, the national strategy that we're going to hear about today, I want to compliment the White House, compliment Tim and Hillary Carter, who is a driving force behind that strategy. Uh, they're both here today. So thank you for your leadership, and thank you for um, putting the strategy out. Um, and also just thank you for your presence here today. One of the sort of underlying tenets of our, our report, our blueprint, was that this, the biodefense um, effort requires leadership, and it requires some centralized leadership because the current situation is sort of too diffused, the responsibilities and accountability is diffused across the federal bureaucracy fractionated among the different departments and agencies. Um, and as a result, the only way we're actually going to corral those responsibilities and focus accountability and make progress is if there's real leadership um, from the White House. And your presence here today and the good work you've done the strategies demonstrating that that's, that's coming through. The one thing I, I want to mention about today is, um, you know, this biodefense is going to take, require focus on all aspects from prevention to recovery to mitigation. Um, but my, I'm particularly interested in talking today about the intelligence um, efforts that we're going to be undertaking to try to detect the, the threats, um, anticipate them, neutralize them, and the, and, and the like. As you know, in our blueprint for biodefense, one of our recommendations was focused on the intelligence community and intelligence efforts. We talked about the need for a, a national intelligence or biodefense manager. Um, we talked about the need to make sure that people are identified throughout the bureaucracy, um, White House, departments and agencies who own the biodefense responsibility, and we talked about resources and, uh, and prioritization. So I think that's something I'm looking forward to talking to, uh, talking with the, um, the experts who are going to be here today. And we have some very good experts. We have Kathleen Riley from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. We'll be talking about the intelligence effort from her perspective. Dr. Duncan McGill uh, will be here. Um, and we also have Larry Kerr, who's with HHS now, but used to be on the National Security staff and ODNI. And in fact, one of the strategies we reviewed when we were developing the, the blueprint for biodefense was a strategy that he wrote. So I'm looking forward to talking to them about um, how the strategy is going to translate into um, step or many steps forward in the intelligence realm. Thank you, Ken.
<laughs> Governor, uh, you. you have the honor to introduce the first witness. Well, it's uh, my pleasure to introduce our, our first panel of one, uh, Attorney Tim Morrison. Uh, Tim joined the National Security Council in July of this past year. He serves uh, as the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Biodefense. Obviously, that portfolio uh, covers uh, all WMD agents, chemical, bio, nuclear, radiological. He's also involved in, uh, particularly involved in strengthening our country's efforts against biological threats. And to that end, if you don't mind, uh, Tim, I, I want uh, Dr. Hillary Carter to stand up and be recognized to the audience. Uh, Dr. Carter. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Carter is the director of, uh, for countering biological threats for the National Security Council. Dr. Carter's got an incredible background uh, education and research, or State Department, domestic and overseas responsibilities. And I think uh, Tim would probably say nobody was more more influential in putting together this uh, strategy about which you're going to testify than Dr. Carter. So on behalf of the panel, we extend our gratitude. And by the way, she is a Pennsylvanian. <laughs> so I just thought I'd throw that out there. Once a gov, always a gov. Thank you, Dr. Carter. Um, so before, before uh, uh, Attorney Morrison took on this responsibility, he had staff positions up on the Hill, both the House and the Senate, but he, he uh, left as policy director of the uh, Armed Services Committee of the House. In addition to that role in public service, he wears another uniform from time to time in the United States Naval Reserve. So uh, Tim Morrison, on behalf of the uh, panel, welcome. Thank you. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Governor, uh, Senator Lieberman, Senator Daschle, uh, Mr. Weinstein, uh, Congressman Greenwood, and the rest of the panel. Um, I would especially like to thank you for singling out uh, Dr. Carter. Um, Hillary is one of the uh, countless uh, civil servants uh, that uh, rarely receives enough attention for her service, but uh, we would not, I would not be here today. We would not be here with, uh, with a national biodefense strategy without uh, countless hours of work from people like Hillary. So thank you very much for singling her out. Um, as a matter of uh, personal privilege, I spent a number of years on the Hill, as you outlined, and uh, many, many hours in meetings with uh, Senator Lieberman, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a special privilege for me to be here today, sir. Uh, I hope you'll go easy on me. Um, but <laughs> no, yeah, some things never change, sir. Uh, so uh, thank, thank you, sir. So um, we're, we're here today. I want to thank the, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel um, for, for your work. Uh, there's, there's an old saying that we, we stand on the shoulders of giants and we can see farther. And I think that's the case here because the uh, work that the administration did on the biodefense strategy and the National Security Presidential Memorandum was very much informed by your work. Uh, when, I, when I arrived in the office um, in July uh, and uh, began getting briefed by people like Hillary about the biodefense strategy, one of the first things that got stuck in my hand was your report. Um, and I, I had the same question um, uh, that you all uh, have asked, and that's there was a direction in FY17 to do a report. What took so long? And I think for our purposes, we took a look at the direction that came from the Congress in the 17 NDAA. And we saw a direction to look at how HHS, DHS, DOD, and USDA 
um, are, are working in the biodefense stra- uh, space and give us a strategy. And we actually stepped back um, and we said, what we're actually looking at here is a whole of government problem. We have 15 departments and agencies. We have uh, the agencies of the intelligence community, all of which play a role in biodefense. So why don't we harness everything that they do um, to protect, figure out how to protect the country uh, from uh, accidental, from man-made, from biological events. And it, it happened that we, we came with the biodefense strategy in the NSPM 17 years to the day that a letter was sent to Senator Daschle, um, uh, the anthrax attacks that, that had a, a great impact on, on, our, on our government, um, and in the centenary year of the great influenza pandemic, a pandemic that killed 50 million people in, a, in an era before air travel, uh, in an era where, where soldiers were brought back from, uh, from the, the war fields of Europe, and we're just here on the, the practically the 100th anniversary of, of the armistice. But one of the reasons that that pandemic spread as rapidly is we had, we had soldiers uh, from, from around the world um, traveling by steamship, traveling by train, and one steps back, one asks oneself what would happen in an era of, of global aviation, the likes of which we have today. I myself just got back from, from Rome uh, yesterday by way of Frankfurt. Uh, and came into contact with countless uh, people, um, uh, all of whom could pose a risk for our economy, for our national security. And so these are the kinds of uh, issues that we took a look at when framing the national uh, biodefense strategy. And so when the president signed his NSPM, I think he took a look at the 15 departments and agencies, the intelligence community, and he also took a look at the examples uh, presented by the Bush administration, uh, and the Obama administration, and said, "Okay, how do we how do we go further? Um, what do we need to do to really build on the, the examples of um, the prior administration's efforts, but also what we've learned since then from Ebola in 2014, what we learned from Ebola in 2016, what we learned from Zika and MERS and SARS and anthrax? Um, how do we take a, a step to really build on uh, the kinds of challenges that the Blue Ribbon Panel uh, highlights?" And so he set about a strategy that, for the first time, uh, presents a leader on biodefense across the federal government, and that's the Secretary of HHS. The Secretary will be essentially the first among equals, um, uh, among the uh, heads of the departments and agencies, uh, chairing a biodefense steering committee uh, to harness all the activities of the federal government um, in the biodefense space. But he will also be the official um, charged with coordinating the range of activities that include uh, the state and local uh, sector. That include uh, the private sector. Uh, if you'll look at the biodefense strategy, I think one of the things that we're particularly proud of uh, that we, we believe sets it apart from some of the prior uh, work is the reliance on innovation, the reliance of engaging the private sector uh, to harness what technology can do to help us deal with biodefense challenges. So we have a, a senior federal official, the Secretary of HHS, we also have my boss, the Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, the National Security Advisor, who will take the product of the Biodefense Steering Committee um, and uh, lead a process in the interagency to assess our capabilities and prioritize biodefense actions across the U.S. government. This annual prioritization process will determine the biodefense priorities for the government and also link it to the annual budget cycle for the first time. Um, that, frankly, is, I think, where we feel we will need help. We will need to help um, our partners uh, in the private sector, our partners in the Congress, understand that they play a role in biodefense, 
uh, that perhaps they've never previously understood. Our definition of success, I think, is very much predicated on the idea if the American people never have to think about biodefense, we've succeeded. We do not want a scenario where the American people have to think about another global pandemic, uh, uh, influenza pandemic, along the lines of, of what their, their grandparents and great-grandparents had to think about in 1918. And so this process that will be led by the Secretary of HHS and the National Security Advisor has five key goals. Assess biological risks, ensure capabilities to prevent biological incidents, prepare to reduce the impacts of biological incidents, respond rapidly to biological incidents, and recover after biological incidents. And I think it's important when we talk about biological incidents, we are thinking about whether or not they are, um, are uh, man-made, they are accidental, or whether or not these are uh, threats that naturally arise from other nature. Um, but what they all have in common is, even in the most remote places of the world, they could spread rapidly and directly impact our citizens' health, security, and their prosperity. And that's what the biodefense strategy is, is seeking to accomplish. What, what we're looking at um, is very much informed by accountability. It is we, the NSPM that the president signed uh, assigns roles, responsibilities, defines end states, milestones, uh, and metrics for the implementation of the strategy. Um, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how we're uh, pursuing those end states, milestones, and metrics. How we are looking at end states, these are, we are defining what success looks like for each sub-objective of the biodefense strategy and the NSPM. Our milestones are time-bound actions that will be taken to achieve each end state milestones and are resource-informed, but not necessarily resource-bound. And our metrics are indicators that will tell us when we are meeting the milestones. And I think the first opportunity for the Blue Ribbon Study Panel to evaluate our success will come um, in January, February, when we meet the 120-day um, implementation uh, deadline provided to us by the NSPM. That will be the president's first opportunity to grade us. That'll be your first opportunity to grade us as to how we are uh, implementing the implementation plan uh, to, uh, in response to the NSPM. And I think what I'd like to close with is uh, a reflection that the administration is attempting to change the government's approach to complex biological threats. For the first time, we will be evaluating national biodefense needs and monitoring government-wide implementation of the biodefense strategy on an ongoing basis. The Secretary of HHS, the National Security Advisor will owe the President annual homework to evaluate the priorities that the biodefense enterprise, the 15 departments and agencies, the intelligence community uh, are currently actioning and what the priorities should be based on intelligence, based on innovation, based on the economy, and based on the vote that is posed, that is given to us by man-made threats, accidental threats, uh, and biological threats. And so that annual assessment and prioritization process will help to ensure that the administration stays nimble and can counter rapidly evolving biological threats. Execution of the biodefense strategy, we hope, will result in a more efficient, coordinated, and accountable biodefense enterprise. But as I, I said at the outset, our work was chartered by Congress. It was prioritized by the President based on his thinking on biodefense going back to, to 2000. Um, but it was really, I think, truly informed by the biodefense, uh, by the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on biodefense. And I think we're very much uh, hoping that this dialogue that we have today, this dialogue that uh, people like Hillary uh, participated in, in the development of the biodefense strategy and the development of the NSBM will continue so we can figure out where are we, uh, are we succeeding in implementing the President's direction and where do we need to do a little bit more work. 
and and frankly, how do how can we work better with our partners, whether those partners are at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, whether those partners are the state and local actors, or those partners are the private sector. Uh, and so with that, I think uh, far more interesting than my comments will be your questions and, and hopefully my ability to answer them. Uh, thanks uh, very much, Director Morrison. If it's okay, I'll begin, and uh, we'll, we'll each take a turn. Um, let me let me ask you this: uh, those of us who are here know how real the biological threat is, but it but it may be that uh, others um, th think it's largely theoretical. So ju just talk for a minute about um, what's on your uh, screen now that's happening. Uh, I know you mentioned when we met briefly earlier about Ebola in the Congo. Um, there are also some evidence, obviously, recently publicly uh, known about the use of rice. And uh, just, just give us a kind of uh, status report on, on why this is real to you and the position you're in now. Thank you, Senator. I think um, I'm going to just pick Ebola because that's the one that I know I can, I can talk about uh, without going to prison for leaking classified information. Um, <laughs> so um, Ebola... I think is something that we've been dealing with since since 2014. The Obama administration uh, came and, and dealt with a significant Ebola uh, epidemic, uh, and there was not a great deal um, that they had available to them. There wasn't a lot on the pantry uh, shelf, and and the situation we find ourselves in, based on the good work that they did at the time and dealing with a very um, aggressive um, outbreak. Uh, helped to set us up where earlier this year when we dealt with Ebola in the Congo and, and now as we deal with Ebola in the Congo, we have, um, we have tools that the prior administration didn't have. Um, we, we are unfortunately, um, while one of those tools um, is a, a vaccine that the prior administration didn't have, uh, thankfully we're dealing with an epidemic that deals with uh, a, a particular strain of Ebola for which we have a vaccine. Um, we are also dealing with an Ebola epidemic in a particularly troubled part of the Congo, uh, where there is a very active uh, terrorist presence and um, a very destabilized security situation. Uh, and so the administration has been leading a fairly aggressive interagency process to bring together the assets that we have uh, while constrained by the security situation that we are presented with in, in the Eastern DRC um, that, uh, you know, I wish I could say we, we had, um, we had a, a more progress to report, but I think we would be in a far worse place today without um, the work done by the prior administration, the work done by the private sector to develop a vaccine, um, and the kinds of intensive leadership focus that we, were f that we, we put on the biodefense uh, problem set through uh, the development of the NSPM and the development of the National Biodefense Strategy. Um, there are uh, several other uh, threat factors you alluded to that I, I think I'll, I'll probably just um, demur on, and, and maybe when we talk again at the 120-day uh, implementation timeline, there'll be more I can say about uh, some other threat factors. But, uh, take uh, the Ebola situation in the uh, Congo. Um, so how would you describe our goal there? I mean, that may seem very far away to people. Is it to uh, try to treat people with Ebola there so it doesn't come here? Is it, 
so talk a little bit about what our yes, sir. national interest is in being involved there. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, in fact, uh, we we talked we we talking uh, we were talking today about the national biodefense strategy, but I would I'm remiss in fact in not pointing out that the national security strategy that the president uh, issued in December of last year. Um, actually prioritizes countering biological threats. And the president in that strategy told us that our, our primary goal with, uh, with respect to uh, countering biological threats is to counter them at their source. Right. So um, A, from a humanitarian uh, perspective, we want to deal with uh, an epidemic um, that causes considerable su uh, suffering uh, and, and, and generally destabilizes a security situation in a country. But the, under the national security strategy, one of the things that we are very much mindful of was we want to deal with that there. We don't want to have to deal with Ebola here. So that is one of our primary um, uh, con-ops, so to speak, if I can borrow uh, from some military jargon. Uh, we want to deal with these, these things uh, at their source. We don't want to have to deal with them at our borders. Um, and so because we have a vaccine, because we have a very robust effort through CDC, uh, very robust partnerships with the WHO, um, we are dealing with that threat there. but. Uh, the security situation gets a vote, and so we are we are struggling to contain uh, that that particular outbreak. Okay, I'll just make a, a comment about one one uh, matter you've talked about, and then ask you a final question. The comment is about uh, accountability, and I appreciate the statement you made in opening. Um, we just found so many areas of the federal government that were involved in biodefense, and they were not coordinated. There wasn't even a clear sense of a, what the budget was, how much we were spending every year. We recommended, as you know, in our report that the vice president be put in charge of this. To, to a certain extent, I, I believe you understand that we backed into that, that we couldn't um, uh, find anybody else. And we were, we were really skeptical of having um, one department uh, person, or one department secretary, even the secretary of our now, as you've chosen, there's no reflection on him. We didn't know who that was going to be at the time we put our report out, because it's sometimes hard to be first among equals. Um, but I understand the decision you've made, particularly uh, having uh, the national security advisor who does have that government-wide um, range and access to the president and vice president uh, responsibilities. So, you know, I wish you well on it. I hope it works, and and um, we'll, we'll just want to keep in touch with you on it. The, the, the question I have uh, is about... Um, BioWatch. Um, the whole idea going way back, and this really came from our experience uh, during the anthrax events of 2001, um, when, we, when we couldn't adequately detect or track potential or realize uh, biological threats. Uh, those uh, BioWatch detectors were supposed to be deployed, as you know, to major metropolitan areas and large mass gatherings to rapidly capture, identify, and transmit uh, pathogen data uh, to federal and uh, other officials. Uh, in our opinion, as we expressed it in the report, uh, it's just never lived up uh, to those uh, expectations. And we're not alone. I mean, GAO conducted a review of the system, found that they actually could not determine the effectiveness of the program and that the Department of Homeland Security had never really developed requirements for the performance of the technology. So. This, this could leave, leave us, probably would leave us, much more exposed to an attack for a longer period of time when we would know it was out there than really we should allow to continue. So our, our recommendation uh, was really to either get 
basically to come up with a new program, either to dramatically improve BioWatch, if that's possible, or, or to come up with a new program. And we particularly pointed to information we had, which was public, that the Department of Defense uh, was developing uh, biodetection systems that sounded to us like they were much more effective than BioWatch. So I, I'm just, I'm, I'm asking you for a report on um, whether this is a priority for you and, and how, uh, what, what, what you hope will happen here. Sir, if I, if I could, um, I'd, I'd rather not comment on a specific program at this time. And I know you mentioned you have Assistant Secretary McDonald, but I think yes. what I would like to just say is, I think this is why we, we settled upon the approach that we did. What we're looking to do um, is through the HHS-led uh, Biodefense Steering Committee and through the National Security Advisor-led uh, prioritization process um, and the role that prioritization process will play with um, uh, OMB on the annual budget uh, review, I think what we're hoping to do, to do is take a look at all of the biodefense efforts across uh, the 15 departments and agencies in the IC, figure out what's working, uh, figure out what isn't working, figure out how priorities have changed since last year, since the year before, since the year various programs have started, so that we can be more responsive to how biodefense is changing, uh, be more responsive to the president's priority on biodefense. Um, and that's these programs that have uh, developed across the interagency, we intend to look at everything we're doing um, on a year-by-year -year basis to make sure that, that the investments the taxpayers are, are, are making um, uh, are as effective as possible. And so um, I'm going to go for a slightly more generalized uh, answer to your question. Um, I know you've got Assistant Secretary McDonnell, and, and again, uh, I look forward to the opportunity to coming back to talk to you a little bit more about how we're, how we're implementing. Um, and once we get the budget um, uh, for FY20, for example, we'll, we'll uh, have more we can say about how the President has chosen to prioritize uh, biodefense above and below the line. Good enough. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Senator. Uh, a quick observation, if I might, and then uh, one question to move along. Uh, I just want to put an exclamation point on BioWatch. It hasn't worked, isn't working, can't be re remedied. This is a system that was put in place shortly after 9-11. Maybe there have been modest improvements. Old technology, labor-intensive. Uh, and for years, those have been involved, and there can't be any higher priority than detecting. And so it's, and it's, it's, it's just, I'm not uh, in any means interpreted as being critical of your response. I think it's a very thoughtful approach you're taking to everything, including BioWatch. But I just think you should know, and I think I speak for, well, I'll speak for myself, I think it's outlived its usefulness, and there can't be anything more important. Before you can deal with it, you got to detect it. And uh, uh, i got to believe in your heart and the doctor's uh, uh, heart that the detection has got to be a high priority. So I'll just do that. You have uh, in this uh, terrific document um, embedded uh, 24 of our recommendations for which we're grateful. Uh, you have uh, the secretary's R and presumably uh, um, John Bolton, National Security Advisor, uh, joined at the hip overseeing the implementation of the strategy. And that's a, uh, it's not our recommendation, but it's an area, it's, it's a point of accountability and contact, and that's really important. I guess the question I have is, will the Secretary with John Bolton or Secretary give specific written directions to the appropriate agencies or cabinet members or sub-members to see to it 
that those specific recommendations that are generically pulled into the strategy, that there's an outcome associated uh, with each one. I mean, uh, we put very specific recommendations. You've embedded some in the report. We're glad they're referenced. Uh, will there be some formal way to direct the requisite uh, groups and subgroups to implement them? Sir, maybe what I could do is I could um, walk you through what our next 12 months look like. Um, I think this might answer your question. Uh, so January 2019, uh, roles, responsibilities, milestones, metrics, end states developed and approved by deputies. Uh, uh, Biodefense uh, coordination team was formed in December uh, of this year. January 2019, HHS uh, will issue a request to all departments and agencies requesting information on their biodefense programs. March, biodefense memoranda due to the biodefense coordination team. 29, June 2019, biodefense assessment due to the National Security Advisor and the OMB Director. Summer 2019, uh, joint policy guidance developed and issued. Uh, September 2019, public report released, uh, an opportunity for the public to, to hold us accountable as the President surely will. Um, September 2019, department and agency budget requests due to OMB as well as the response memos to the policy guidance. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to convey is the, um, the, the fairly robust process that we are using for the lines of effort that were in the strategy, for the lines of effort in the NSPM, um, who is responsible and what progress uh, we're making. So we can provide that up to the president and we can provide that to the public um, so that both uh, the Congress that will have to um, give us the, the funding needed to execute these biodefense priorities um, knows what it is that we're doing. Uh, the Congress knows what it is that we're doing. Uh, the Blue Ribbon Panel will be able to help us um, course correct as needed. Um, but uh, I think we have a fairly uh, robust process for um, accountability uh, so that uh, these are not just words on a page, that this is a process that the president can come back and say, so what, what's being done to implement something that um, uh, one of the things I, I found when I came in, this is, this is something that he's been thinking about since, since the year 2000. Uh, this is something that's been with the, the president for a while um, and he's, he's personally motivated on. Does, does that help, sir? Very encouraging response. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, sir. Senator Dash. Well, let me just start by uh, again associating myself with Governor Ridge's remarks on BioWatch. I, I remember getting briefed on BioWatch uh, a long, long time ago. I was in the Senate, and uh, anthrax had occurred, of course, and I had such high expectations. And I must say, I'm very disappointed with what has happened since. And I, I. Uh, I think detection is so critical, and I just don't think we're we're anywhere close to where we need to be. And BioWatch has been sort of our cover. Um, we could always point to BioWatch, and that was our cover. But that cover is getting very flimsy, and it's it's not certainly no reflection at all on this administration. You've inherited a lot of these programs, and I'm just uh, one of uh, of the panel. But I too would really want to see uh, how we might make uh, a new program on detection more effective. I, I, I would just, uh, I, and I, I also was encouraged by your response with regard to delegating roles and responsibilities. Are you concerned at all that a peer agency is going to be 
coordinating this effort uh, with other peer groups and, and, and departments. I mean, I, I worry a little bit about authority and whether that delegated authority is going to be clear enough. I, I think it's so critical that we have the clarity around roles, responsibilities, and deadlines. And it would seem to me, just inherently in any bureaucracy, that that enforcing those roles and that that series of deadlines is really going to be a challenge. How confident are you that we can do that? Sir, I mean, I think from our perspective, this is one of the, the reasons that we were uh, pleased that the president decided to give us an NSPM. Um, at this point, it's not just a strategy document that we write, we, we sit on a shelf somewhere. The, the president has given us his direction for how he wants us to undertake uh, this. And for my brief time in the executive branch, when the president tells you clearly what he wants you to do, that's, um, you know, you just, you just don't get more um, than that from the perspective of working the bureaucracy and working the executive branch. So w what, we, what we tried to do here was we tried to set up um, a, a process that uh, while we're, we're very fortunate to have uh, uh, people like uh, Secretary Azar, people like Assistant Secretary Cadillac, uh, Assistant Secretary McDonnell, um, I saw earlier, these are, these are experts in their field. Um, but you can't build it just around the people. You have to build a system that can that can uh, that can persist and survive beyond individual personalities. And, and I think that's the advantage of the approach we've settled on with the Secretary of HHS, with uh, the National Security Advisor, reporting up to the President, who has given us clear direction. Um, uh, President Trump is, uh, as 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 most uh, would would say, is. Uh, he, he, he lets us know very clearly and directly what his expectations are, and then he's uh, not shy about holding us uh, accountable to them. Great. You mentioned NSPM uh, several times now. Let me just ask one uh, more of a technical question. Uh, uh, the, uh, the NSPM accompanied, the, uh, obviously, the, 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 the national strategy, and it made a, a number of recommendations. Uh, the national strategy for countering biological threats and the national policy for biodefense uh, were uh, actually rescinded um, to previous presidential policies. But other relevant biodefense uh, directives, such as the defense of the United States Agriculture and Food uh, Program, and uh, uh, that and uh, uh, there were, were some that, that, that were, were not rescinded. How did you make the decision between those that would be kept and those that would be rescinded? So I, I think uh, for the NSPD uh, and the PPD uh, from the prior administrations, um, we took a look at what they did. There was a lot of good in there that I think we kept. There was, uh, but also a lot that we built upon, especially the accountability. Um, and one of the things that uh, we wanted to make sure is that um, it's clear that the Secretary uh, of Agriculture has uh, expertise in protecting um, what is a significant uh, biodefense uh, threat factor, and that's our food system. So we didn't need to go in and we didn't need to tamper with that. We needed to harness it and put it into the interagency uh, process uh, and make sure that uh, the prioritization there could be um, included in the prioritization we'd be doing across the uh, 15 departments and agencies in the intelligence community. Um, but where we began, began to be concerned about the possibility of inconsistent direction would be if we kept that NSPD and we kept that PPD on the books, 
Um, so that's why we wanted to repeal them when we issued the NSPM to make clear that this was the, this was the direction that departments and agencies have to be uh, following now in terms of how we would review biodefense across the, the federal government because this is how the president will be holding them accountable. So we, we really just wanted to make clear what the processes would be and not have inconsistent directions still on the book, so to speak. Um, but how the Department of Agriculture deals with um, a particular idiosyncratic problem that it has, like uh, like food security, the security of the agriculture sector, um, that would be uh, something that they would bring to the table in the Biodefense uh, Coordinating Committee and the Steering Committee. Um, and that would obviously be something that uh, we would look at in the annual prioritization process. So it'll be annually reviewed? Everything. Uh, everything will be annually reviewed. The, the, the document is clear, and I think the departments and agencies are, are very well understand that everything um, is reviewed under the president's direction uh, in the NSPM. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Jim. Thanks, Joe. So just segue from the annual review. Um, thinking about um, imagining us all sitting here a year from now and uh, trying and asking you, in what ways is America safer now than it was when we met on this date? Uh, you have a, we have a new strategy, we have new structures, we have new players, uh, and as we all know, those of us who have served in government, it's all of us a very long time, um, it's so easy to lose momentum because we start assessing things that have been assessed, we start thinking about things that have already been thought about, um, and and it's it's hard to move a bureaucracy. And so um, give us your thinking about what, what you see happening in the course of the next 12 months that would um, – move, you know, instead of reinventing wheels, move wheels forward measurably so we can sit here a year from now and say, in these ways, America is measurably safer than it was a year ago. So we, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know um, where we're going to be with a particular problem set like Ebola. Um, we don't know, uh, will, will Mother Nature surprise us with um, influenza? Will Mother Nature uh, surprise us with, with something else? Will there be a, a non-state actor that, um, that surprises us? Um, I think what we do know is uh, because of the NSPM, we'll be in a better situation to understand um, uh, who is accountable, who the president can go to in a particular uh, threat scenario. And I think we'll be in a better uh, position to understand um, all of the tools that we have at, uh, to bring to the to bring to bear on the problem set, I think we'll be in a better position than we were in, for example, in 2014, uh, when the prior administration was was faced with Ebola, and and didn't know what it had available. It didn't know what it could bring to the table. It didn't have all the relationships with the private sector and the the vaccine manufacturers that it wound up um, uh, calling upon, and it wound up uh, building that sort of muscle memory for us that we could call upon. So, so hopefully what will be in a situation uh, to report back in a year is that Mother Nature has been quiet, the non-state actors have been quiet, and we've been in a, um, a, a place that we can um, turn the crank on this process, uh, this machine that we've created for the president's direction uh, to better prioritize the things that are working, deprioritize or replace the things that aren't. And I'd like to come back in a year and show you what some of those things are. Um, uh, but that, that's, I think, how we're, we're, we're hoping. Um, I wouldn't say, maybe I should have caught myself, I don't think we're naive that Mother Nature is going to give us that break. Uh, we, she, she's not giving us that break today in the DRC. Um, but 
we know more about biodefense today than we knew uh, before we started this process, and we know more than we knew in 2014. We know more than we knew in 2001, uh, to be sure. Um, so, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping uh, we'll be able to do uh, with uh, a year of operating in this process, um, and and again having that clear accountability where if if somebody uh, comes in and, and wants their their playground left to themselves, they want their their programs left to themselves. Um, it's pretty clear under the NSPM that that's not the way the president wants it. I appreciate that, and I my po point was not to anticipate what's going to happen. Obviously, we can't do that. But just just to emphasize that there is always a, tendencies, a tendency to for people to say, well, let's wipe the slate clean and let's start from scratch and let's start rethinking. When, when so much has already been done, it's really a question of building momentum on what we already know than it is gathering new information about what the threats are. And I think what we're looking to do is get our arms around what, what's working, what isn't. Um, and how the priorities change because of, of that that man-made space, that, that accidental space, that biological space, how that emerges year by year by year um, so that we can we can build on what works and we can deprioritize what isn't. Uh, thank you, Jim. Ken. Thanks. Um, I'll apologize in advance, Tim, but I'm going to beat a dead horse here a little bit about the centralized leadership. So um, as you recall, we recommended and as um, Senator Lieberman, Lieberman explained, um, we recommended that the leadership of this across government effort be housed in the office of the Vice President. And that re really was sort of less a sort of particular um, gravitation toward the Vice President and more recognition that this needed to be run out of the White House, that that's the only way that we're really going to sort of corral all the elements of the government and focus them on a single objective. Uh, and then we had a uh, biodefense, um, what was it, coordination council we recommended that, that the vice president would chair. So you all have the secretary, secretary is our, and you have the steering committee, the biodefense steering committee, so roughly the same, I guess, as the, the coordination council we recommended. So I guess the question for me is when the rubber hits the road and the inevitable happens where, you know, Secretary Azar, you know, despite his best efforts, can't get maybe one of the constituent agencies or departments to do whatever is necessary for the mission. Often that would mean ceding responsibility for something, um, and that can't happen. How does that then get translated into the White House coming down and saying this has got to happen? Because, you know, the usual paradigm is you have the National Security Advisor or the Homeland Security Advisor. Yeah. That person gets regular reports, has principals meetings, and everybody sort of gets in line because the president is sort of directly answerable. How is this going to work where you, you – I understand that um, the National Security Advisor is, you know, held accountable and his job is to, to hold people accountable, but how does that actually happen in practice? That's my concern. So I think that's where the, um, the, the problems that you uh, identify uh, where um, – the Biodefense Steering Committee, led by the Secretary, will uh, survey the biodefense uh, activities across uh, the departments and agencies across the intelligence community. Uh, they will uh, produce a report, and then it's left to the White House. It's left to the National Security Advisor to coordinate the interagency. And so we, we do this, uh, as you well know, sir, uh, every day. Um, the goal is to find consensus, but where consensus um, isn't found, the, the, the policy process um, looks to that, and ultimately we have uh, here the, the president's interest. So where there's not a consensus, um, we've done the work. We've looked at 
uh, who's right, um, uh, maybe who's got a perspective that um, is missing what is the higher priority, uh, and set that up for the president to decide. So through the NSPM, ultimately, the, the president will be in a position to hold the secretary and hold the national security advisor accountable for uh, for why priorities haven't been uh, addressed, for why um, uh, there's there's disagreement um, and consensus wasn't reached in doing that annual evaluation of the of the priorities uh, and the threats uh, based on the work that's been done in the HHS-led process to uh, examine everything that the federal government is doing in the biodefense space each year. Okay, so is the steering committee sort of going to take the place of the, like the PCC deputies process? It would just go straight up. From no, I, no, I think the the steering committee will um, will inform the the PCC and the DC process um, to give us the the data on uh, what's being done, what the what the priorities are, and uh, where there's disagreement about whether something falls above or below the line, um, and. Um, housing that in the, the White House under the National Security Advisor um, gives us a process that, that has worked pretty well um, and that the interagency knows how to do um, across administrations. Okay. And then um, one related question is, uh, so I know Homeland Security Advisor uh, Admiral Fears, is, is he going to be involved in this? I, I, absolutely, sir. Okay. Good. Uh, Director Morrison, uh, I get a kick out of adding that title to your name, Tim. Uh, thanks very much for being here. Uh, I'm sure we all have a lot more questions, but I know you've got to get back to the White House, and we've got a, a really full group of witnesses that we're going to hear during the remainder of the day. We're already over our schedule, so I, I'm going to consider this what I know you are, the beginning of a, of a dialogue between us, maybe even the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Who knows? <laughs> or in our case, a continuation of one that began. Uh, in the Senate, but uh, thank you. You've been very responsive. I couldn't help but think as I as I listened to you, and I know I'm sure you think of this every day, and maybe sometimes at night. Um, you, the position, the responsibility you have, is um, well, it's invisible to the public. We're, we're focused on it because we have an interest in biodefense, but uh, God forbid there's an event. Um, or even take the the fear of the Ebola outbreak, which thank God didn't go very far here. The the Klieg lights of the modern media will um, um, just focus in on you and all you're doing. So I appreciate all you're doing uh, preemptively, and uh, we we want to be your uh, allies in that work. Thank you very much for thank coming you very much over. For your time and your leadership, sir. See you soon. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That never happened when you were in the Senate. You never got a round of applause. <laughs> okay. So uh, second uh, panel, uh, Dr. Ann Shuckett, uh, uh, James McDonald, and uh, Catherine Godfrey. Dr. Shuckett is the principal deputy director and former acting director of the Centers for Disease uh, control and prevention. She recently retired from the um, U.S. Public Health Service at the rank of Rear uh, Admiral. James McDonald uh, is the first Assistant Secretary for the CWMD Office at uh, DHS, which operates both the BioWatch program and the National Biosurveillance Integration Center, which we've uh, already referred to in part. 
before the creation of the CWMD office last year, Mr. McDonald served as the director uh, at DHS of the uh, Domestic Nuclear Detection Office, DNDO. And uh, Catherine Godfrey is an assistant uh, director at GAO. It's great to be back working with GAO, which was always of such great help to us uh, in Congress, uh, has been involved in uh, GAO's work examining federal bio surveillance programs, including NBIC and uh, BioWatch. Um, I think we've got it organized. Thank you all for being here very much. I think we got it organized. That Dr. Shukert, we'll start with you. We'll hear all three of you, and then we'll go to questions. If that's a, uh, Mr. McDonald, I want to thank you. I know you rearranged your schedule so you could uh, stick with us uh, for the duration, and I hope you don't regret that decision. <laughs> okay. I know you won't. I know. <laughs> right. Okay. Dr. Um, Shukert. Great. Thank, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to participate today. It's a real privilege to be here, and I feel a lot of history in front of me. Um, I, I have been at the CDC for 30-plus years now and have um, experienced many of these um, emergency responses firsthand, and so the need for us to continually strengthen our preparedness, our detection and surveillance is absolutely crucial. And as you've been hearing, CDC is right at the moment responding to Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo, responding to a polio-like illness that has emerged in children in the America, and um, supporting state and local public health who are at the front lines of the, the wildfires in California. So the topic today is very personal. Um, I want to briefly describe some of the progress that we've made in biosurveillance and detection, increasing the breadth speed, utility, and depth of our systems, and then um, provide a couple actionable recommendations if there's time. Good. Um, the, uh, the CDC has been busy working, um, as has uh, the rest of Health and Human Services, to strengthen the systems that we have. Um, we have broadened our coverage of um, surveillance using the syndromic surveillance program, which looks at emergency department visits. We now have two-thirds of the emergency department visits in the country under that system. 2.6 million emergency visits a day come into that with essentially real-time visibility of these trends. Um, we've expanded the speed. Our mortality data, the death certificates, we have um, pretty much a tenfold increase in the past four years of death certificate data or mortality data that gets to CDC within 10 days of the fatality. Um, we've increased the utility of the data that we um, can access by developing a community of practice around the National Syndromic Surveillance System with visualization and analytic tools that state and local health departments that are part of this can um, access. They can see what's going on in their state and in the neighboring states or others, um, and can make decisions based on that data. We've also increased the depth of the information that we collect, and here I want to highlight the laboratory data. As you'll be hearing in, in later panels, there's been a real revolution in the laboratory tools that we um, are able to access, and so what we call advanced molecular detection or using some of the next generation sequencing techniques, we can get a much finer fingerprint around events that are of importance and link them with other events. Um, an example there is our PulseNet system that tracks foodborne diseases that works very closely with the FDA's 
genome tracker system, this um, transformation from an old laboratory method to this new um, genetic sequencing method is helping us find outbreaks earlier when they are smaller, recall foods or get to the source quicker, and leave um, many, um, and, and be able to save lives, basically, in that uh, arena. Another example of this um, more granular laboratory testing is the influenza system, which, of course, is critical for detecting unusual viruses that could be the beginning of a new pandemic or um, changes emerging viruses that suggest that our vaccines may not be as effective as we like. We've transitioned to a system that we call sequence first, where instead of using a 50-year-old antigenic testing method, we can do much quicker sequencing that really can pinpoint emerging strains, helping us in more real time develop candidate vaccine viruses that industry then can use to create vaccines. This more um, granular approach to the laboratory detection helps us understand patterns. Another example is really the uh, current Ebola outbreak in uh, East um, DRC versus the 2014-15 outbreak. The laboratory detection in 2014-15 was quite labor intensive. We were helicoptering specimens from the outbreak to where the CDC lab had been set up. Um, now, using a, a tool called Gene Expert, there's um, on the ground, close to the action, um, polymerase chain reaction testing that doesn't have all the safety concerns of having to grow up the virus and that can get the answer of this person has Ebola and needs to be isolated much closer to the response teams. So I think in, in summary, there's been a lot of progress in the U.S. and global um, uh, deployment of better detection and better surveillance and yet we have room for improvement, as is always the case with preparedness. Um, a couple actionable recommendations for your consideration. Just as the laboratory systems have really advanced, the information technology and data systems have also really advanced. And it's critical that the government, and I would just provincially say CDC, be able to um, accelerate the public health system's adoption of newer methods. Um, we have a public health data strategy, and HHS has a full approach to reimagining data that really get the tools of um, more real-time, more um, accurate information to the, the uh, individuals who can take action. So the first um, recommendation is just to um, support, resource, um, implement, accelerate the, um, the full adoption of modern information technology systems, or what I would call timely, more accurate, more accessible data. A second related recommendation is the workforce that can do that. Um, as many in this room know, the, the um, state-of-the-art information technology informatics specialists are high price and precious, and the government cannot always recruit, attract, retain, at, um, uh, incentivize talented individuals to, to come into our ranks. And so um, we, we have an internal priority of, of being able to hire more data scientists, but I think the government in general really needs these 21st century analysts to be deployed for our nation's protection. Um, a third point I would just make is about our laboratory response network. This is the network across the country uh, that um, is used right now to confirm the signals that BioWatch um, uh, 
uh, alarms, but it's also used for other means like to roll out a new test for the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, the MERS virus, or the Ebola virus, or a new strain of flu. The, the laboratory response network has been a precious tool for the nation's protection under the leadership of CDC and our scientists. And my last recommendation would just be to continue the support for the leadership and coordination of the laboratory response network to be at the CDC, where we have the strong relations with the state and local health departments, and as well the scientific expertise to do that. So thank you for um, my opening remarks. I look forward to the questions. Uh, thank you, Doctor. Uh, that's, to me, uh, a lot of exciting progress you report, so I appreciate it. We, I'm sure we all have questions for you. Mr. McDonald, thanks for being here. All yours. Thank you, Senator. Uh, Governor Ridge, it's great to see you again. Senator Daschle, thank you, distinguished members of the panel. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be here today. Um, I was going to wear a BioWatch hat. I'm glad I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll discuss that last in my remarks. Uh, the Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office was established through an 872 notification to the Congress by Secretary Nielsen. Uh, while the office was created, it does not have the authorities across chem and bio that it does in the nuclear side of things. So as, as CWMD was created through an 872, it was, I, I now oversee the Domestic Nuclear Detection Office and the Office of Health Affairs until Congress does the authorizing language to get that, get that finished. There has been a bill passed in the House to do that. It is on the Senate side now being reviewed and uh, in, within the, the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, they've also passed a, a similar bill. So we're hoping to get that through in the next couple of weeks during a lame duck session. And what that will do is allow me to take all of the assets and capabilities that were developed over the years for the nuclear side of the house, which are quite robust, and apply them to the ChemBio pro, uh, programs. So it's not a resource issue, it's an authorities and an ability to, to be flexible. So any, any assistance that, that you and your, and your teams can provide in educating members on the criticality of getting that through would be greatly appreciated. Um, so CWMD, including biodefense, is a top priority of this administration. You've, you've heard Tim Morrison talk about that already. President's national security strategy includes WMD specifically calls out biodefense in Pillar 1. But it, but it doesn't just say biodefense, it says pandemics. So that, that is not left off the table in this. There is the, the biodefense, the sort of national security aspects of it, but then there's a naturally occurring diseases and, and a propagation of that. Uh, the president obviously issued national security or uh, biodefense strategy. Um, that is a partnership. I, I can assure you that uh, we are working very closely with, with our partners. Uh, I, I uh, agree with uh, previous comments that some of that is personality dependent as we get going. Uh, Bob Cadillac, who's uh, running the program over at Asper at HHS, he and I worked in the military together. We've been friends for 25 years. So that relationship was really easy to do. Um, our office was created. Uh, the secretary believes that this is a critical mission for the department. So it's my, my responsibility to look across the entire Department of Homeland Security, identify areas that we can leverage to, to do WMD prevention. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. And then significantly, the uh, U.S. Special Operations Command has stood up a CWMD fusion center in the NCR, and it's headed up by a Navy Admiral. Uh, I started doing 
biodefense in 1993, digging up anthrax in uh, Iraq using real-time handheld biodetection assays. They were quite expensive at the time. They were custom-made, but technology, as has been mentioned, uh, has advanced. Uh, within DHS, I'm in the process of standing up an organizational support bio biosurveillance data integration. Big data is a big part of what we're going to do. So while NBIC was created, it was NBIS, and I noticed in your report it still had the S. Uh, so NBIS, the National Biosurveillance Integration System, was set up uh, in, in, in the Infrastructure Protection Office within DHS when I was still there in 2004. Um, limited resources, limited scope, uh, limited ability to pull data, uh, good, good idea, um, sort of re really good intentions, really smart people, but never really had the muscle to be able to pull in all the information they needed and share it rapidly. Um, when OHA was created, it was cobbled together by some programs. So BioWatch was one of them at about $80 million a year. NBIC was another one. BioWatch came from the S&T directorate. NBIC came from OHA, or excuse me, the, uh, I just mentioned uh, infrastructure protection. And that was pretty much the whole budget, those two programs for, for that office. So there was not, over the years, a discretionary budget for them to be able to do much with. Um, I'm not going to defend BioWatch. I'm not here to do that. I think BioWatch does what it was designed to do. But when BioWatch was fielded, we didn't have smartphones. So, you know, it's, it looks the same as it did 20 years ago. I was a head of security at Avantrack for a while. And the, the anecdote I like to use on BioWatch is 600,000 people a day go through Penn Station in New York. They connect with a 9 million person subway system and within, when, within one hour of four international airports. And the current CONOP is yesterday somebody released smallpox or some other disease. That to me is unacceptable. So we intend to change that. Uh, virus surveillance is going to continue to be a critical part of this. Uh, we are leveraging the DHS Big Data Center, which is the CBP's National Targeting Center. It's been built over the years. It tra literally tracks every container, every commodity, every person moving and coming into the United States. Uh, there is CDC presence. There is USDA presence. Uh, Customs and Border Protection has USDA food ag inspectors at the borders. They are part of my customer set to support. But we want to know what's moving, where it's moving, where it's emerging. Uh, just to give you an example, the difference on the way we're going to be looking at biosurveillance bio and integration is I'm assigning about 150 people to be on the information analysis side of, of the WMD mission. So it would be full-time, dispersed around different agencies, embedded in the intelligence community. I just deployed somebody into HHS. Uh, I have somebody at the FBI or DOD. So we're embedding across the organization, and we want to see things as they're emerging and as they're developing, regardless of where they are. Um, we're tracking very closely what's going on in, in the Congo. Uh, there's the uh, we're looking actually we're watching the the movement of the convoy coming or the caravan coming north, right? What what diseases might be there? What what medical issues we may have at the border? Uh, one thing that's important to note when the office was created that the, the sec current secretary, then chief of staff, thought it was critical to still have a presidentially appointed chief medical officer. We do, and that's to have the gravitas and the expertise for the biodefense mission to have a doctor who can represent the department at the most senior levels. Um, so I don't need to repeat what's in your uh, reports critique on BioWatch. I will stipulate that uh, 
what everybody has said is accurate. I'm happy to tell you, though, that we intend to replace BioWatch, and we've already started that process. I've stood up uh, using the DNDO architecture. I've stood up a rapid capabilities office. The U.S. Air Force has detailed a lieutenant colonel to me from their rapid capabilities office to stand the office up. The first project they're doing is called BD-21, Biodetection 21, and that's named based on what was in the panel's recommendation to have a 21st century system. I believe the first equipment will be in the field next month. We have already uh, let contracts. Um, I think Senator Lieberman mentioned uh, DOD, R&D, um, might have been Congressman, but uh, we uh, are doing the contract for BD-21 through the uh, what's called the CWMD Consortium at Aberdeen Proving Grounds with the Army. So the ChemBio program executive up there is who has developed the technology. We're working very closely with them. And in the way the way a rapid acquisition works, the, the, uh, it's, it's a SOCOM type of a model as well, is it has a board of directors. The board of directors in this case includes Dr. Cadillac. So he and I sit there and we evaluate whether the guys are buying the right type of equipment, deploying into the right environments. And our plan is to replace BioWatch within the next couple of years, but uh, over the next six to eight months, we will have five different technologies deployed into 12 different locations throughout the United States and be collecting data into the National Targeting Center to do be able to do big data analytics. We're already working very closely with the DOE laboratories and other big data analytic organizations to help us develop algorithms that will be able to do anomaly detection. Um, the backbone that we're using for that was developed for the nuclear side. So we've, we've been for 20 years deploying nuclear de detection technology. Um, I'm using my nuclear authorities right now to build the backbone for the big data analytics. We've already embedded folks into the targeting center with CBP and the plan then is to be able to literally plug in the biodetection sensors that will be in the field. The difference is going to be this this is not a collect a sample, deliver it to CDC, and then do analysis of the sample. It is real-time detection of an anomaly in which then a first responder with appropriate handheld equipment and personal protective gear can go down range and do a quick sample and determine whether there actually is, is a risk there or not. So you take the Penn Station example and you get away from 37 hours before there's a decision to literally in the first 10 or 20 minutes, people know something is, is an indicator. It may be wrong, it may not be wrong, but you can have incident management systems set up in the first 20, 30 minutes, somebody downrange actually doing a sample and having a presumptive analysis at that point within 30 minutes so people can start making decisions and do incident management. Do you shut down the, the air handling systems? Do you turn off trains. You know, there's some pretty high-risk decisions that have to be made, but what we've done is we've put operators in between the, the detector and the laboratory. So just like we do for bomb squads, for hazmat units, that's done all the time. We have, we have tremendous capability in the first responder community out there, but that system will still do a collect, will still collect something that will go to the laboratory following the presumptive analysis. So now incident managers can be sitting there saying, okay, I've got a problem, I'm gonna manage it. Now let's send the sample over to the lab and let, let the CDC lab determine exactly what's there so the right decisions can be made on pharmaceutical deployments and other types of public health response. 
Um, subject to that, sir, I'm happy to take any questions. So uh, thanks, uh, thank you too, Secretary McDonald, for a, an encouraging report. And uh, really, we appreciate uh, hearing you say that you intend to replace BioWatch and have some uh, uh, are taking steps right now to do that in a more effective way. I'm sure we'll come back and ask you more about that. But thank you, Ms. Godfrey. Thanks for being here. It's like old times for us on the Hill to have somebody from GAO before us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's um, it's really great to be here um, talking to the panel. I think as uh, we'll hear in my remarks, GAO's past work has a lot of resonance with the panel's findings. We have followed that with interest and really um, appreciate your work. So GAO has work going back to 2009 on the entire biosurveillance enterprise. Throughout 2009 and into 2010, we conducted a comprehensive review of all of the federal biosurveillance efforts and also noticed the fragmentation, um, how the fragmentation of federal efforts created the conditions under which capability gaps could go undetected, making the nation less prepared. And at the same time, as GAO, uh, we were looking at programs like the National Biosurveillance Integration Center and the BioWatch Center, um, both of which I'll speak more to in a minute. And we noticed how the nebulous architecture and lack of a coherent national vision for both biosurveillance and the larger biodefense enterprise in which it was situated created the risk of inefficient resource use, um, enabling programs that lacked compelling proof of concept, well-defined mission needs, and clearly articulated operational objectives. Um, as a result of that broader work, we recommended a national biosurveillance strategy. Um, and as we know, the White House later published a strategy, um, but this recommendation was never completely fulfilled. Um, as the study panel noted in its follow-up to Recommendation 11, an implementation plan was not published or implemented. Um, and without it, we were not able to find that the strategy as written addressed the concerns both of efficiency and effectiveness that we raised in our report. Um, earlier this year, after eight years of having the open recommendation on the books, we closed it as unimplemented. Um, and we hope to revisit that issue as part of an upcoming review that we have on the new national biosurveillance strategy, which was in um, the NDAA as a mandate for us. Um, and as, as an aside, in 2011, um, based on these same observations of fragmentation, we also called for better leadership and a strategy across the biodefense enterprise in our very first duplication overlap and fragmentation work. Um, and so we uh, have been following and appreciate the, the panel's um, recommendations in that area as well. Um, following the work on the federal biodefense um, programs, we examined the non-federal biodefense capabilities, finding that many of those were funded through um, federal mechanisms. Uh, we recognized, and as the study panel acknowledged in um, recommendation 12, that non-federal partners are the cornerstones of um, rapid and effective detection and response. Um, so we added the idea that the capabilities of non-federal entities should be accounted for in the biosurveillance strategy, um, but because we were never able to close that strategy as implemented, we also closed out that recommendation as unimplemented. Um, so concurrent with um, our work on the Federal Biosurveillance Enterprise in 2009, we took our first look at the National Biosurveillance Integration Center, MBIC, um, and we reported on some of the same information sharing challenges that the study panel has pointed out in Recommendation 13. 
And at the same time, we noted that AMBIC had not employed the best practices for collaboration that, that we recommend, um, most notably clearly defining its mission and clearly defining roles and responsibilities across the collaboration. Um, so in 2009, we recommended that AMBIC take those actions that were in its own purview to try to improve that collaboration. Nevertheless, when we revisited the situation in 2015, we found little progress on the data sharing challenges and even more troublesome, about a third of the partners we interviewed expressed general doubt about the feasibility of MBIC's mission. Um, interestingly, we found that many of the partners believed in the importance of a central federal biosurveillance integrator, um, but at the same time, we found many of the agencies with direct biosurveillance roles had established other data and information sharing channels that did not involve MBIC. Um, by analyzing relevant documents like the authorizing legislation and the MBIC strategic plan and analyzing the content of the interviews we conducted with federal partners around the expectations for MBIC, we were able to identify three distinct functions that MBIC was filling or expected to fill. Um, and MBIC had partial efforts in each of them, but also faced challenges in each and was not able to dedicate itself to fulfilling any of them completely. So the functions we identified were the analyzer, um, who uses technological tools and subject matter expertise to develop shared situational awareness, um, create meaningful new insights from disparate data sets um, that could not be gleaned in isolation. The coordinator who develops networks to be able to rapidly convene multidisciplinary partners across organizational boundaries so that they can tap the analytical uh, capability to develop shared understanding of emergent signals. Um, and the innovator who facilitates the development of new tools and approaches to address gaps in biosurveillance integration. Because the question of which of these functions should be MBIX focused and what kind of resources should be dedicated to making it more successful is more of a policy question than a performance auditing question. We presented our findings in the form of options and challenges without making a recommendation. However, the study panel's recommendation 13 that the viability of the National Biosurveillance Integration System should be assessed and the finding that the department continues to try to make it work while ongoing issues confound its utility resonates with our findings. Um, I would caution, however, that even overcoming the data sharing challenges detailed in the, the blueprint um, would not necessarily solve the conundrum that EMBIC that faced. There's a cost for trans, transforming and amassing volumes of disparate data, and the value of this kind of integration as a tool for early detection and warning is not fully proven. To be successful, there must be a clear definition of the mission need to guide expectations for what kind of signals AMBIC should attempt to discern amongst the noise that would be created. The work that the department is currently doing to make it work, um, AMBIC's stalwart effort to produce daily surveillance reports offers a demonstration of these issues. As we collected information for our last report, we observed that a great deal of daily operational um, energy was invested in creating these reports, but few of any of the, the partners who reported, who had day-to-day -day operational biosurveillance missions reported that these were useful to them. Um, and most of them expressed frustration or confusion, noting that the information was either irrelevant to them or came many days after they were aware of the event without adding any new meaning or value. So speaking of defining the mission need, I'm going to conclude my remarks with a recap of two BioWatch reports. Uh, a lot of uh, what we found has already been discussed here today, so I won't belabor. 
Um, but in 2012, we talked about how DHS had deployed the earliest detectors very quickly and had not gone through any formal effort to define the mission need, had not assessed alternatives to meeting that need, and had not established clear requirements. And so as the program progressed, uh, um, officials aimed to produce a better BioWatch program, um, trying to get to, I think, what Secretary McDonald talked about with the, the time that it takes to produce a report. Um, and they, they were building on that, the older generation trying to produce a result in less than six hours. Um, so in this context, and based on the general perception that there was already departmental um, consensus, DHS forged ahead um, without clear requirements or testing and sought to acquire an automated system to address the time issues without a comprehensive and systematic effort to ground the acquisition in a well-defined mission need and set of requirements that would allow it to assess uh, against that need. So we raised questions both about the, the assumption that an automated system was the only solution, and we pointed to the need to be specific about the broader benefit of this kind of environmental monitoring as part of a layered biodetection approach, given the considerable uncertainty about both likelihood and magnitude magnitude of biological attack with one of the limited number of aerosolized pathog pathogens BioWatch is designed to detect. Um, and to that end, it was promising to hear Tim Morrison talk about taking a look across the entire enterprise about what's working, what's missing, and how to prioritize. Um, we, so we recommended that DHS halt the Gen 3 activities, which um, it subsequently did after conducting an alternative um, analysis, and then as in 2015, um, as Senator Lee alluded to earlier, we revisited the program and found that, um, that the department had specified the aim was to detect attacks large enough to cause 10,000 or more ca casualties, but it had not defined the operational requirements associated with that goal to allow it to draw conclusions about system capabilities from performance testing or model, mo um, modeling. So we recommended that DHS establish performance requirements for Gen 2 and clarify operational requirements, and then test the system against these needs to establish its capability as a baseline for any future enhancements. Um, and we recommended that any future enhancements should apply best practices for testing and evaluation. Those two recommendations remain open. Thank you. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, uh, Ms. Godfrey, um, both for, uh, frankly, the extent to which you validated and agree with some of our concern, but also the way in which you point forward. Governor. Yes. Doctor, did I hear you correctly that uh, you're able to monitor 2.6 million emergency room visits a day? That's right. The okay. current system has 65% of emergency departments in in the in the system. There are different data use agreements with different jurisdictions about who can see what's going on there, but the volume of data is 2.6 million emergency department visits is, a day. Is, is, I'm trying to figure it out my mind. It's the era of big data, and you got it. Is there a standard form or that these emergency rooms fill out so that uh, you, uh, through perhaps a design of your own internal algorithm, can pull out information? Because you certainly can't 
assess manually 2.6 million, million visits a day. That, that's right. This so they, is, they do it this, according to a form this is a you've given cloud, them? It's not a form. It's, it's the way that they're um, dealing with their encounters is captured in a cloud-based um, system. So they're algorithms based on uh, chief complaints. You know, is Excellent. it a respiratory illness, a diarrheal illness? Um, right now we're adapting this system for overdose detection. It's the system by opioid. which we're monitoring the yeah, opioid yeah, okay. epidemic. Talk to, talk to me a little, a little bit about pharma. Uh, you've got uh, thousands and thousands of uh, pharmacies. Uh, one would think that if, without revealing privacy, but mm -hmm. uh, is, there, is there any mandated reporting of, of uh, antibiotic use or, or uh, uh, to you on a regular, on a daily basis, so you could see if certain parts of the country there's a prescription? The, the system that I'm, from that? yeah, the system that I'm describing is such that different streams of data could be right. um, could reside there, and different allowed secure users could access information. In terms of the the pharma data, I'll say one thing we're rolling out this season, which we wished we'd had last year, was um, an app that provides information about antivirals against influenza and their availability in different pharmacies. You may recall people having to drive around and call around to find out where's the antiviral, where is it still in stock? So we are working with uh, the private sector, with pharma, to make some of those data accessible to the public or to, to specialized users. Right now, um, the amount of um, pharma data that's in accessible through this national syndromic surveillance platform and, and Biosense platform is, is probably relatively limited. We are linking in the poison center data into that system, so it, it's um, the idea is is no longer you know you fill out a form and you try to get everybody to do the same form, but you use what the healthcare system has and make um, uh, make that accessible with um, as you say with algorithms. Are they mandated to file it, or is it voluntary? Uh, none of this is mandated. It's not. No. Jim, uh, it's too bad it should be. Um, without revolving privacy, I mean. We, we, very interesting. We'll have to take that up. Jim, you know, one of the interesting, I thought it was interesting, one of the observations I made as secretary is that we have multiple testing capabilities around the federal government. DOD's got theirs, Justice has theirs, DH has theirs, and blah, 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 blah. One of these days, maybe we'll just have a couple of centralized testing and Catherine, you brought up operational requirements. And I've often wondered whether or not, since we set up the department, whether the testing capability within the department has matured to the point where BioWatch 4 or looking for new technology, you can say to the private sector, these are the, these are the operational needs, these are the requirements, come on and test. And we'll, we'll, we'll choose the most effective one. Do we do that yet? Yes, sir. How difficult it is to get your testing? Okay, we do, please. Well, so there, there's a lot of discussion going on about testing, but uh, so DNDO, when it was created by, back in uh, 2006, has statutory authority for doing test and evaluation of systems, research and development, and sort of getting across the what's known as technology valley of death. So things get developed to a certain stage, and then they just stop, and they never get into the field. So DNDO... The structure was developed specifically to do that. Now, what we've done, uh, so Lisa Gordon-Haggerty has taken over at NNSA. She chairs a group called the MEC, the Mission Executive Council, which brings together DOD, the intelligence community, myself, 
and others. And one of the things we're actually looking at across all the agencies is how we're doing testing and where are test beds that we can leverage each other's activities, those types of things. Uh, the reason we went through DOD on this acquisition that we're doing, or this rapid capability for BD21, is to leverage all the DOD testing activities. So we'll have test plans that have to be done as part of the acceptance criteria, but we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We're just taking advantage of what DOD has already done. Do you use any of the national labs for that purpose? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. In fact, uh, we just had a meeting with sort of the big five uh, a couple of weeks ago on the big data analytics piece and how that is going to work and how they can help. But we do testing at the labs quite a bit. Are you familiar today with whether or not there are any existing mature technologies that would be could be immediately embedded and substituted for BioWatch, which none of us really believe in? Uh, yes, sir. That's in, in fact, what I was talking about, deploying technology next month, we'll be putting stuff in the field in the United States and trying it out based on what DOD has learned and deploying the systems overseas. Excellent. So there's the, the technology's there. It's the, the ch bigger challenge is going to be developing the CONOPS with state and local responders and identifying the sort of what's the bell curve for bio for what's, what's an anomaly. On red nuke, it's pretty easy. Either radiation or you don't. Chem is very similar. But bio, you know, when the cherry blossom festival is going on, the air is a lot different than a cold, rainy day. So understanding that background is part of the reason that we're doing the initial deployment for testing. So this is field test and evaluation in 12 different locations around the country. So we're literally sampling different air in different environments and building that data set. Thank you, sir. Uh, thanks. Just a couple of quick questions. Um, you know, I really appreciate this last exchange you had, uh, Secretary McDonald, with, with Governor Ridge, because I think one of the impressions that I, I've had is that after 2001, we, we really uh, rushed to get things in place, including BioWatch. It never fully uh, delivered on our hopes for it, but part of what I, I think we all assumed was that, that so much had happened in the development of technology since then that there were better technologies. And I, and I believe I'm hearing you say that you, you agree with that, basically, and you think that DOD now has um, tested and has some systems that we can use here domestically that will really bring us to, uh, as close to up-to-date as we can and, and have a much more effective system than BioWatch. Yes, sir. And uh, I think there's two parts to this. Uh, the, the other part of it is, is incentivizing business. Um, you know, when you look at BioWatch and you say you have 34 locations around the country, essentially a vacuum cleaner and a filter system, it's not very enticing right. for businesses to invest their own resources in to try to compete. Um, we've got a plan laid out where we, we what we hope to have is 9,000 locations by 2025 with real-time biodetection integrated into a real-time data analytics system. So it's uploading, uplinking data real-time and handheld equipment that's also linked. And that becomes pretty enticing for businesses, uh, large and small, and innovators to be able to say, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to play in this operating environment. And we're also building the system to have an open architecture so it can literally be plug and play. So we want to incentivize small businesses being able to say, hey, I've got one piece of the solution. I want to be able to plug it into the system. And I think that over time that, that will there'll be a lot more money spent on the system in, in new technologies and people, there'll be better competition. 
So I used to own a small business. I would have loved to have been in this sort of at the ground floor. But we're, we're getting a lot of interest from industry. And I think that's really the, the big win in the long run. It's not, you know, a small government laboratory doing its own thing over and over again. It really needs to be people out there that are developing really good technology. Really to do the job, it's not like you're, you're artificially creating a, a demand for this equipment. To really do the uh, BioWatch job, you, you've got to have that uh, many Yes, sir. Well, this is an example on the nuclear side since the Nunn-Luger legislation back yeah. in 96. Uh, about 60,000 nuclear detectors have been purchased in, in the United States and deployed. Um, none of them currently transmit, well, not sure to say none. We have some programs now where we're starting to have so they transmit data. So you can actually get a, a, an operating picture right. from the information flow. Um, I see the biodetection very similar. If we had, if we had done bio when we were worried about loose nukes, then we might have been in the same space. But I think the, the problem that happened with as, the, as bio evolved was the Office of Health Affairs was given responsibility for chem bio defense, but had no discretionary budget to actually move the ball forward. So while we, it's easy to beat up on BioWatch, the people that run BioWatch actually do an excellent job, and it does what it was designed to do very, very well. It's just what it was designed to do isn't what we need today. So I want to I want to uh, clarify what you said in your opening statement because I think it's important, not not too exciting, but important, which is that uh, it's important to you that Congress authorize in statute the office that you had, because without that authorization, your authority with regard to am I right, chemical and biological is not uh, as comprehensive or strong. As it should be. Yes, sir. Um, so, for example, BD21, the, the program that we launched, was yeah. done with the reprogramming. Those funds will run out sort of early 19. I don't have the ability to move money across the mission space currently because the way the appropriations are separate. Um, I have all the authorities I need on the RAD Nuke side, everything from doing international agreements to R&D to rapid prototyping to acquisition and life cycle sustainment but do not have similar authorities for chem and bio. It just, oh, the Office of Health Affairs just wasn't designed the way DNDO was. So the plan is to take those authorities and just say it applies across the board. So that, that allows that flexibility, and then the appropriators can appropriate accordingly. Right. So we'll try to help. Uh, I presume you're in touch with White House uh, uh, Congressional Liaison. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Sugar, one, one question. Uh, you really reported some uh, very exciting uh, progress, and uh, I was going to ask that same question. Did I, uh, Tom? Did, did I hear you right? <laughs> Two point six million a day—that's really important. Is that a capacity now to know what's going on in emergency rooms quickly? In any sense, a uh, substitute for BioWatch, or is it more a complementary system? Gives us a kind of Maybe it's not right to say redundancy, but, but uh, it's another way to get at the problem. You know, these are complementary issues. The BioWatch is looking at the environment, what's in the air for a select number of, of agents or pathogens. The emergency department data is important, and it's, you know, large scale. It's a syndrome level. It's, you know, respiratory illness, diarrheal right. illness, drug overdose. The laboratory systems for human illness and for animal illness are really important, and those need to be 
you know, um, modernized, quick, very sensitive, because, um, you know, respiratory illness could be influenza or many other things. Sure. Influenza could be many different strains of influenza. Which one is the one that's going to cause the next pandemic? You need to have laboratory evaluation of the clinical specimens. So I think these are multiple complementary right. detection or surveillance systems that together give you an operating picture that's, that leads to action. Good. Thank you. Senator Daschle. Well, let me first uh, commend all three of you. We really appreciate your uh, excellent presentations this morning and uh, the insights you've given us. And I, in the interest of time, I might just limit myself uh, to one question to you, Secretary McDonald. The National Biosurveillance uh, Center obviously was given the responsibilities to aggregate and analyze biological data across the federal government. We have noted that uh, the viability of the center really should be assessed, that it's uh, that it, the question, I guess, is whether it's living up to the expectations that we had when, when the agency was created. What are you doing to assess the center's capabilities and challenges with regard to biosurveillance data integration, a major challenge in this whole context, and uh, a, a role that obviously I think requires uh, almost an ongoing um, appreciation of uh, the change in technology, the change in circumstances. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on, on what we're doing in that context? Yes, sir. Um, so I'm not a big fan of studies and uh, strategies sometimes when they don't get implemented, right? I mean, you see, you see studies get done, get a list of actions, nothing ever happens with them. Um, so 2012, NBIC did a, a uh, biosurveillance strategy. Um, 2016, they were cycling to do another one. Um, when uh, the current administration uh, came in, it was uh, the NBIC budget was zeroed out, and uh, in the budget request, it was put back in by the appropriators, and they said, "Give me a five-year plan for NBIC." Um, so I met with the the NBIC team, and I said, "Okay, well, given given the current state of play." The five-year plan looks a lot like we're going to spend the money that was appropriated this year, and that's going to be zero next year and for the next four years. So not a great plan. So I said, look, you have available to you the big data that the doctor has talked about, the, the National Targeting Center as a, as a physical infrastructure capability that the Department of Homeland Security has. So I said, instead of saying this is NBIC and here's where I want to take it, say, in five years, what should a really good biosurveillance capability look like, and then work backwards and do an implementation plan for that. So design the perfect system, understanding that what we have at our disposal now is, is an unbelievable amount of data. So instead of sitting on Vermont Avenue with a couple of TV screens and a half a dozen analysts, and say, pick the team up, go to where the data is, and, and then looking at that, that big data, analytic capability, all of, all of the resources that are available, say, how would you do this and what would a perfect system look like? So that's the challenge that the team had. That document is actually in review right now to be released to, to, to meet our congressional requirements. And I'm actually very optimistic. I think uh, what we will do is we will, the, the team will do a very good job operating out of the National Targeting Center. Uh, we're not going to duplicate data sets, but what we do have is the ability to share data across agencies. So, for example, DITRA 
the Defense Threat Reduction Agency has created, I've got to read this one, uh, biosurveillance ecosystem. Um, so DOD has put a lot of money into this. Uh, the NVIC team has been, or is in the process of being certified to be an interagency host for that information, and we intend to use that same big data cloud. So what we're trying to do is get the, the people where the data is and where decision makers are. So one of the problems, I think, uh, the, the morning reports or the daily reports were mentioned. So I get a daily report from, from NVIC. I, I pay attention to it right now because of Ebola. We're tracking that very closely. But the, the real question is, in all of this work, is how is it relevant to the operators to make decisions? And if the information isn't flowing into somebody to be able to make a decision, then it's not really relevant information. So by putting the, the NVIC team where the folks are that are controlling all the goods and people coming in and out of the United States, we think that's actually the right lash up. Because now the, the, the person that's going to say that container is not allowed here or that ship has to be anchored off and be quarantined, well, we can't quarantine. The CDC person that's at the targeting center would say that. But it's, it's integrating the data at the place the operational decisions are made and where the data exists. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, Tom. Jim? Thanks, Joe. <clears throat> thank you all for being here, and, and moreover, thank you all for your uh, making so much of your career you know, in, in public service. Um, Dr. Shuket, a uh, question for you, and if either of the other panelists have responses, I'd be happy to hear those as well. But I was also impressed by the progress that you reported at CDC, but I want to focus on diagnostics um, and ask you wh where you find the gaps in terms of being able to get as close to real-time diagnosis in a variety of settings, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, whether it's battlefield, whether it's in hospital, whether it's in some catastrophe in the environment, in, the, in society. Um, what, what, where are the gaps, and, and what do you think are the, the technological frontiers that are um, that we need to have um, our the private sector um, uh, pursue? Yeah, thank you. There, there's been so many advances, and, and the commercial diagnostic tests are taking care of a lot of the common things that clinicians or, or um, healthcare needs. But many of the diagnostic questions that we have in biodefense or in you know uh, public health are not don't have markets. You know, the the unusual pathogen um, doesn't necessarily have a market. Um, BARDA has been helping incentivize some of the development of diagnostics in that space, and, and obviously NIH doing basic research and CDC doing a lot of the deployment and evaluations. But one thing that's really important for these emerging threats is the ability to rapidly develop a new test and deploy it. We have tools right now that, that help with that. You know, lots of the technology is the easy part, the polymerized chain reaction or, or some of the other approaches. But there's a, a regulatory process that we use, the emergency use authorization, that FDA will allow us to deploy a new test, and the labs can pick that up. Um, the the um, sustainability and incentives for that whole process probably could bear looking. I mean, it's, it's worked when we had a new pathogen like Middle East Respiratory Syndrome or Zika, but the um, we ended up having a lot of coordination challenges around, you know, many different groups were developing Zika tests, making sure they were accurate, making sure they were deployed, and making sure the information got into a detection system. I, th I think there were probably gaps in the information being recovered and then the, um, the speed with which we could get deployment. Uh, 
Uh, thanks, Jim. I mean, we're way over uh, scheduled. Yeah, but I, I wanted to ask if anybody had, had any questions. We had so much talent over there. I hate to have them. So, no, you go ahead, Gov. Any questions from the ex-officios, experienced, wise, sitting like Supreme Court justices over there? The, um, the global cooperation is just essential for the natural and the other threats as well. Um, after the 2014-15 Ebola response, um, the global community stepped back and said, we are not doing our job. We need, to, we need every country to be able to, to um, find, stop, and prevent epidemics, and we need the global community to surge. The World Health Organization really has stepped up in response to huge criticism in 2014-15 and have been um, leading a much more coordinated, effective response in, in the DRC Ebola outbreaks. In terms of China, there are different ways that we are cooperating, particularly around influenza and specimen sharing and sequence sharing, because it's a, a global threat rather than a national threat. But I think there's always um, room for improvement with um, some of the countries that are less transparent or, or less um, collegial. Anybody else? Yes. Yes, uh, Mr. McDonald, I think we all appreciate from the comments that you've heard about um, the advances that you're talking about that are desired in BioWatch. Would you be willing to say in an open setting what the technology is that you're basing this on, where the first responders would be sort of taking the first cut? Um, so I'm actually not technically competent to explain the, uh, the different technologies. Uh, but that being said, um, so there's, it's going to be multiple phases. So first, the first thing we're doing now is triggers. And, and having those in, initial indicators that just says, hey, there's something wrong here. Then the, the next phase will be the handheld equipment that operators will go downrange with. That'll be informed greatly by what DOD and, and other organizations currently use. Um, what we are going to shift away from on uh, the nuclear side as well is we're going, not going to discuss publicly any longer where we have capability, what its capability is. So uh, you're not going to see RFPs, for example, in the future that says if you if you you know you keep your radiation signal below this level, it'll get through the port. I, I think that that over time, as there's just been too much information that's been public, but uh, there there are opportunities to discuss it in, in sort of more 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 closed sessions. So, so um, I can't resist just the last question to you briefly, um, Dr. Shuggett, since you're here. And to make a real again how ongoing this is, um, tell us about the polio-like illnesses you're dealing with now. What, what are you finding, and is there a threat that it will spread more broadly within the U.S.? Yeah, this is a very um, upsetting and concerning condition. It appears that since 2014, for sure, there's been every other year um, outbreaks. Um, uh, yesterday, we updated the statistics for this year with 90 
children so far in 2018. 90. Uh, 90 this year with a couple, with about 150 others that are under investigation. Being ill, in other words. Um, not, not absolutely. And actually, I just recently got to meet with some of the families where I think I think sometimes on the news you hear it's weakness in an arm or a leg. Right. They're, they're children that are quadriplegic from this. Um, oh. There are some very severe um, situations. It's, it's really um, very touching and moving to talk to the families that are coping with this. Right now, most of the illness um, follows a viral-like syndrome, a cough or respiratory problem, a little bit of uh, some of the cases have had a diarrheal illness. So we do think that there's a, a viral illness that triggers the neurologic response, um, and it, it appears much like polio, but it isn't polio. There's suggestion in a number of cases of an enterovirus, which is, a polio is an enterovirus, but these are other ones. But we don't know whether the body's reacting to the virus in some sort of immune fashion or if the virus itself is causing the condition. CDC's developed a task force bringing clinical experts, research experts, um, and public health experts together to advise both about a research agenda to help get to the bottom of what this is and how we can deal with it, and then also to update the clinical guidance that, that um, emergency departments, urgent care, pediatricians, um, deal with. Um, it's it's um, not likely that it's over. You know, this is the season each of these every other years that we see it, but we really want to learn as much as we can from what's already happened and be more ready for next year or more likely two years from now when we expect it to increase again. Um, it's different than what we were seeing 10 years ago, right. but we don't um, we don't have all the answers. And, and it's not... Uh, uh preventable by taking the polio vaccine. No, it's not. Absolutely not. I mean, the children are, are pretty much vaccinated for the things right. that are recommended, but we don't have a clear enough idea of what a target for a vaccine would be or what the what the full pathway of, of the illness is. So I think we have a lot of work to do, and both CDC and NIH and um, the, the academic research community and the public health community are, are working hard on this when now. you say get ready for it, what, what does that mean? I mean oh, you, you're not going to create a new vaccine just no, for No, but um, one of the challenges um, is that on the first presentation of an illness, um, people may think, oh, you know, it looks like a mild thing. It'll get better. You go away. You don't really get all the specimens. We want to have the emergency departments, pediatricians, ready to go to get the best clinical specimens right away. Um, so that we can get learn more about the causes. It, it may be we haven't found clear-cut laboratory evidence because of the type of specimens we've gotten and the timing and the type of tests that were run on them. Well, the second thing to get ready is to be ready with clinical trials because um, right now the, the families have gone through all these different treatments and we're really not clear what things may make it better or mitigate the course of it. So ideally you'd be ready to go in a future season. It's usually sort of August, September, October timing with um, ability for potential illness to be, the, the families to enroll their children in, a clinical, in clinical trials. So I would say we want to get ready to learn as much as we can going forward while we learn as much as we can from what's already happened with these families' experiences. Thanks for that report. Really thanks more generally for the work that CDC does to focus in on a, on a, on a real heartbreaking uh, outbreak like that. Uh, overall, uh, this has been a really encouraging testimony, and uh, I, I'd like to say we'd like to get back together about a year from now and hear how, how you're doing. It doesn't have to be at this big setting. It could be, but we could just have a meeting uh, with you and the members of the panel. Uh, for now, thank you very much. It's time for lunch.
late, but we're going to have it.
Hey, welcome back. <laughs> you miss me a lot, I did. I did. I miss you between the meetings, you know. Okay, we're ready to begin again. I hope everybody had a good lunch and we're only uh, 15 minutes behind our schedule. Is it? No, no, we're actually 25 minutes behind, but we're going to shorten the afternoon break. Uh, uh, thanks uh, very much uh, to our two panelists, one of whom looks uh, suspiciously like somebody who's an ex-officio. Um, this panel is on medical uh, countermeasures and diagnostics, and as uh, uh, was indicated earlier, we feel like diagnostics is an area that we haven't really much focused on or not enough, and we thought this would be a good opportunity to do it. So. Uh, we have two great witnesses. The first of formation familiar face is Dr. George Post, uh, who is an ex-officio on our uh, panel and been a great help to us, chief scientist at Complex Adaptive Systems Initiative and Regents Professor, the Dell E. Webb Chair of Health Innovation and former director of the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University. Um, a lot more I could add to that, but a real authority in the field, and we're really delighted that uh, we're going to hear from him in this capacity today. And Dr. Jeffrey Ling, MD, uh, PhD, Chief Executive Officer of Sun Q LLC, Professor of Neurology and Attending Physician, Neurocritical Care at Johns Hopkins Hospital, Founding Director of the Biological Technologies Office uh, at DARPA at the Department of Defense. Really, there's a, a lot of expertise in front of us, so uh, thanks for being here. And uh, Dr. Post, we'd, we'd love to hear from you now. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, recommendation number 30 from the Blue Ribbon Panel Report in 2015 and Section 351 of the recently released U.S. National Biodefense Strategy, as well as many other reports, identify the importance of diagnostic tests across the entire bioincident response and recovery spectrum. Uh, these objectives, while cogent, reflect the obvious but all too often underemphasized and certainly underinvestigated principle that faster detection saves lives. History teaches us that the first clue that a bioincident is unfolding is likely to be when an unusual pattern of infectious disease suddenly appears in hospital emergency departments or on farms, and proficient mobilization of preparedness actions then depends on the speed and accuracy of diagnostic confirmation in these settings. Achieving this level of capacity depends on a number of critically interrelated elements. First of all, alert physicians and veterinarians identifying that an atypical event is occurring. Second, the assumption that a diagnostic test is available, which is not always the case the availability of laboratory resources and trained personnel to conduct the test in a safe manner. And as we heard this morning, in an area in which diagnostic testing, at least in the uh, G7 countries, will largely be based on genetic sequencing, by analogy with fingerprint testing, we need to identify and match the pathogen that's suspected against a large database of genetic fingerprints from pathogens around the world. The construction of these databases is far from straightforward and also requires substantial computational scale and sophisticated analytical expertise. And as we heard this morning, 
bioinformaticians and data scientists are in very short supply to undertake this exercise. Once definitive diagnosis has occurred, rapid mobilization then depends also on the existence of an infrastructure information technology infrastructure to disseminate information quickly at a global, national, and local level. And the next generation of diagnostic tests, in addition to detecting the organism, should also be able to detect features indicative of drug or vaccine resistance, potential changes in virulence markers, and whether or not there has been deliberate engineering with nefarious intent. These seemingly straightforward requirements are, in fact, deceptively complex. Many aspects of the sophisticated R&D which is now needed to develop multiplex, multi-agent diagnostic testing are of comparable technology to drug development, but even if not breaching the $1 billion mark, nonetheless may involve sunk costs of anywhere between $100 and $200 million for the companies uh, involved. And at the same time, I think it's interesting to note that the that the longitudinal prize initiated by the UK government just issued a report this week uh, which documents the decline in investment in diagnostic technologies for infectious disease. As we heard this morning, the most important advance in infectious disease diagnostics in the last five years has been the shift away from culturing organisms to be able to uh, uh, identify them by their genetic signatures. This has the great advantage, it is organism agnostic. In short, any organism can be profiled. You can profile multiple pathogens and detect subtle changes as new variants emerge. But despite the transformative power of this sequencing, the cost and complexity of the technology still remain as barriers to routine adoption, including many US public health settings, yet alone in low resource settings overseas. These barriers will undoubtedly fall with progress and transitioning to increasingly automated sequencing equipment with the ultimate aim being portable handheld devices of this type for use in uh, austere and low resource settings. But in addition to the immediate and optimum management of initial cases, diagnostics are at the core of population triage to distinguish the infected from the uninfected. This is absolutely critical in prioritizing the allocation of finite me medical countermeasure uh, uh, tools and in implementing relevant quarantine and other containment actions, all the more so in settings for which no drugs or vaccines are available. Effective diagnostic identification of non-infected individuals represents an invaluable community mitigation measure to reassure the worried well who, particularly with media amplification, could all too easily overwhelm medical services and fuel public panic. Assuring the safety of imported food for human consumption has long been part of public health, but in the agricultural sector there is a growing recognition that animal viruses can survive in animal feed ingredients for substantial amounts of time. Most recently in the context of the ongoing African swine fever outbreak in China, there's evidence that the virus can survive for at least 30 days in transoceanic uh, passage. Another often overlooked importance of diagnostics is in monitoring the effectiveness of decontamination protocols to allow safe reoccupation of buildings, the disposal of infectious waste, 
not exactly a cocktail party fact, but the average Ebola victim will actually generate something like 74 liters of waste to be managed. So you begin to amplify that as a uh, waste disposal problem. Mortuary procedures, safe mortuary procedures, and disposal of infected animals and plants in agricultural bioincidents. Detailed diagnostics data on the genetics and other molecular features of pathogens are not only essential for containment activities, which I've just outlined, but if nefarious origin is suspected, then advanced molecular data will in fact be the principal evidentiary basis for forensic analysis and attribution. And it's important to remember in the case of a major bioincident that extends over weeks or months, surge production of diagnostic tests will be vital. This is currently a major gap with inadequate interagency coordination within government and insufficient market incentives for the engagement of the private sector, particularly in the case of very high complexity genetic and other molecular uh, tests, and also to invest in the development of devices uh, of, of this kind. But notwithstanding the primacy of diagnostics in the detection and management of an overt bioincident, Innovation in diagnostics R&D is also crucial for building upstream biosurveillance capabilities. As we've heard, the goal of biosurveillance is to detect and limit threats at their source, to mitigate epidemic pandemic spread, identify zoonotic spillover from animals to humans, or avoid major dislocations in the agricultural economy and the global food chain. Uh, in the joint external evaluation exercise implemented under the international health regulations, the U.S. scored predictably high in most dimensions of public health, but among the eight lowest scores were diagnostics and shortcomings were highlighted specifically to emphasize the need, I quote, to build surveillance systems for priority zoonotic diseases and pathogens and to build animal and public health laboratory capacity to detect and characterize antimicrobial resistant pathogens. And as the panel has heard, this is the concept of One Health, the intimate linkage, not just on the basis of zoonotic disease, but uh, broader issues of human health, animal health, uh, and ecological health. We, have, we currently have an inventory of 1,400 human pathogens with 335 new emerging infectious diseases since 1940. Project PREDICT, the Global Virome Project, and the DARPA PREEMPT program have now identified over 1,000 viral species with the potential to be zoonotic risks, primarily coming from reservoirs in rodents, bats, and primates, and therefore targeting new biosurveillance capabilities to particular hotspots to monitor such spillover is particularly critical. The next element is the fact that development of such a real-time biosurveillance capability depends also on parallel proficiencies for the timely transport, receipt, and diagnostic testing of samplings together with sharing of data to construct global databases and real-time situational awareness. I will not be as diplomatic as Avril Shukat earlier I think the recent action by the People's Republic of China to not share the influenza H7N9 strains is a troubling portent involving the one pathogen that most of us feel is potentially the most dangerous potential pandemic threat, 
and these unfortunate actions build on previous obfuscations and lack of transparency by the People's Republic of China about SARS in 2002 and the prevalence of circulating influenza strains in their, in their poultry industry, and as I mentioned earlier, now African swine fever. And more recently, concern has been voiced that the Nagoya Protocol of the Convention on Biological Diversity may impose additional costs and delays in sharing samples because the gene sequences involved may be the potential source for filing of intellectual property uh, by the nations involved. So data sharing, interoperable databases, and the big data challenge all come together. And despite the obvious theoretical appeal of real-time sharing of critical public health data, significant obstacles remain. We may, in fact, get data from 2.6 million people in emergency rooms per day, but that is often delayed in its reporting. It is voluntary, as we heard, and certainly does not uh, capture the increasing importance of walk-in clinics such as urgent care and so forth. Even with optimum capture of data, data siloing in multiple databases with incompatible formats and lack of interoperability still remains a major uh, issue. And as we heard, the big data challenge moving to the exabyte world, namely 10 to the 21 uh, bytes, is in fact uh, an issue that we have to be ready for. So in, in summary, even though this is clearly a very superficial analysis of a very complex domain, with apologies for the alliteration, my remarks can be summarized by a series of S's. The first, by definition, is situational awareness. That is prime in all of these issues, whether it be biosurveillance all the way to the forensic uh, attribution. The second is surveillance. What's out there? What's potentially coming? The next one is speed, speed to detect, to have turnaround times of less than an hour. The spectrum, the ability to profile across a broad range of organisms. Sequencing, gene sequencing, both at point of care and point of need. Simplicity at another level, particularly in the developing world where we would like to have remote handheld detectors. In any instance, scale and scalability, not only for our databases, but also in terms of surge production, which is a major gap and a major vulnerability, even if we know what the organism is in the case of an extended episode. Uh, security of our databases will become increasingly important in an era of synthetic biology, in which one wants to make sure that data on uh, new variants of serious pathogens cannot, in fact, be uh, quickly exported. But my final S is perhaps the most important one, suboptimal. We have an underappreciation of the role of diagnostics across the full spectrum of biodefense preparedness. We underinvest relative to drugs and vaccine uh, countermeasures. We have ill-defined priorities for interagency R&D and engagement of the private sector. Invest, uh, underinvestment in the infrastructure and technologies to monitor the threat posed by zoonotic spillover, and lack of international policy development for dual-use applications of synthetic biology, which carry implications not only for the need for new diagnostic technologies, but also drug and vaccine uh, development. So as acknowledged, Mr. Chairman, there are indeed a broad repertoire of new technologies which can be mobilized. These will in turn require new regulatory paradigms for these technologies, but perhaps the 800-pound gorilla in the room 
apart from the pace of science and the changes that Mother Nature, yet alone terrorism, may impose, is that we have to create suitable market incentives for industry engagement, and for the most part, they are lacking. That is a challenge, not just in the infectious disease area, but those of us who work in the oncology field, reimbursement for molecular diagnostics for cancer is equally a pernicious as a problem. Uh, I'd be happy to address these topics and others in question time, Mr. Chairman. That concludes my remarks. Uh, thanks very much, Doctor. I'm going to add an S, which is a simplistic or some might say simple-minded question, but <clears throat> just so uh, I, for one, understand, what, what would you include in the definition of diagnostics, just to, as a general definition? Anything that detects the organism, so that can be a lab-based test, it can be a wearable sensor, it can be a dipstick test, anything in short that enables you to detect that an organism is present. Right. Ideally, you would like to know additional features, but it's, it's that trinity of classical laboratory diagnostics, right. increasingly wearable sensors or, or mobile sensors in devices, and you could even argue that elements of digital diagnostics are beginning to emerge through uh, 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 internet biosurveillance capabilities in terms of syndromic. So any, anything that enables you to better understand what an organism is, where it is, and what's happening with it. So it's a very broad definition. And, and that can uh, be in response to um, <coughs> obviously an infectious disease outbreak, but also a, a bioterrorist attack. Yes, absolutely. So all three, all three categories of detection uh, whether it be upstream in terms of environmental biosurveillance, monitoring an event that an event has actually occurred, and as I said earlier, once an event has occurred, the triage of the population, particularly to differentiate the, the worried well, who will be still the majority from the uh, infected individuals, and obviously in, in the context of veterinary uh, medicine, distinguishing uh, the infected herd from the uninfected herd or flock uh, becomes equally important. Great, thank you. I should have said first that <clears throat> when at college they had a special track for people like me in uh, uh, satisfying liberal arts requirements, was, which was called science for non-science majors. <laughs> so thank you, I, I understood. <laughs> Dr. Ling, thanks for being here. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you for all your service. There you go. Is that better? Yep. All right. So uh, thank you. Uh, so I'm going to uh, address this issue based upon my experience uh, at the agency called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. So at DARPA, we like to look at these kinds of problems the way uh, Director Arthur Prabhaki said. DARPA does science to build capability. It doesn't do science to do science, but to build capability. I like to look at it another way. When I was at the agency, we were looking ways to say yes. So if we have a serious problem at hand, how do we say yes to addressing these problems? So in the world of biodefense, and of course I am a retired army officer, and I will tell you that it's the most chilling to me. Of all of the threats, it's the most chilling. I'll tell you why that is. Because biology does two things. It fights like hell to, stay, to preserve self, and it fights like hell to preserve species. So if you turn something loose, it's going to fight like hell to survive and to sustain its uh, progeny. 
this is a terrible thing. A nuclear uh, uh, attack is a one-time flash. But a bio thing can roll on and on and on and on. Look at Ebola. It's going to come back again, and it'll come back again, and it'll come back again. That is what biology does. So DARPA felt it was serious enough to start its own office, the Biological Technologies Office. And so we addressed the biodefense problem looking at it like this. There's going to be a threat. We have to identify it. We have to rapidly respond, and we have to sustain our response if we're going to win. So we have those four elements to it. And within those four elements, number one is obviously you want to prevent it. Number two is you want to diagnose it, the, the purpose of this particular panel. Number three, you want to be able to treat it. And then number four, beyond that, you actually have to sustain it. And that basically means is you've got to figure out a way to manufacture whatever the heck it is that you're using. And the second thing is you've got to make it through the regulatory pathway. That is a fact of life. You have to figure out how to do that. And DARPA actually addressed all of those elements. But let's focus now on the diagnostic, which is really what you wanted to talk about. So there is the goal of for always identifying the virulent pathogen, whatever it may be, a bacteria or a virus, or what the heck have you, so that you can appropriately respond. However, there's more than that. How can you first identify that there's a tsunami coming your way? What are those sentinel features in the ecosystem that is allowing, letting you know that there is a tsunami coming your way, the hurricane, as it were? And so one of the DARPA programs was called the Chikungunya Challenge. And that was, in fact, to look at those elements within the ecosystem that allow you to predict the spread of a pathogen while it's starting. That, in other words, it's starting in Thailand and it's working its way across Asia into Europe and then ultimately the United States. Is there a way? What are those sentinels? And so that was from the Chikungunya Challenge. The second one is, of course, in the diagnostic world, is... Do you have a box that ultimately when it gets here, that you have a way of doing these diagnostic testing? You had heard eloquently from the previous panels of the diagnostic uh, laboratories that exist in the United States. They're in hospitals, they're, 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 they're business, and on it goes. They're really slow. They're not going to be at your port of entry. They're not going to be with your first responder. And they will be in your emergency department, but we've all been there three hours later, they're telling you you're having a heart attack. Well, thank you very much. Right? Where's the undertaker? So what we have to have is a box that's right there. It is not the difficulty of the test, it turns out. What's the long pole in the tent? It's not the difficulty of the test. Immunotherapy, uh, um, in, uh, immunochemistry is a well worked out. Uh, polymerase chain reactions is well worked out. It's the preparation of the specimen. You want to be able to spit into this machine and it tells you you're sick, like right away, or put a drop of blood or put a, uh, or put a drop of urine in there. It is that pre-processing that takes hours. And that's what DARPA is focused on in the ADEPT program, is to find ways to fast create ways to process that material so it can go directly into a machine, and that machine can then spit out your answer. It's the pre-processing. That's the long pole in the tent. That's what DARPA looks for, is what are the long poles in the tent. What about once you have somebody sick in, your, in front of you? What do you do? Well, a couple of things. Number one, if it's a virus, it may the best thing maybe is just to leave them the heck alone. Because as we all know, we've all ridden the subway, we all have children and grandchildren, and they sneeze on you. It doesn't mean you're going to get sick. So if you don't get sick, you don't worry about that person. The person you worry about is the person who's going to get sick, and the person who's going to shed the virus, i.e. be a typhoid marion spread. Are there ways to detect this? And the answer is yes. The Prometheus program and the PhD program, which are currently ongoing, in fact, have already identified that they can actually do this. 
They can actually predict way in advance of expression of symptoms shortly after exposure that this person will get sick, but this one will not. They've both been exposed, but this one will get sick, this one will not. Furthermore, this one who's going to be sick, I can tell you when they're going to get sick, and I can also tell you when they're going to start shedding viruses, i.e. be a typhoid Mary, so we need to lock them up in their house. This is work done by Jeff Ginsburg down at Duke University, so he's not a bum, he's actually at Duke. You know, uh, you know so the, the UNC people, please don't know if I, I'm not sorry to offend you, but, uh, but uh, they've shown it, they've published it. Even better, they've shown that if you treat these people when you know they're going to get sick, they won't get sick. And you only have to treat them with a single day's dose, not 10 days' doses. Why? Because viral load is so low. So these are the benefits of during the early diagnosis. What you've done, understand what I said, by only having to treat for a 24-hour period rather than a 10-day period, you've just increased your supply of therapy by tenfold. That's what you've done. You've increased your supply so logistically it has a benefit. So the diagnostics is definitely worse. So those three elements, the prediction of the ongoing tsunami, i.e. the chikungunya challenge, the identify of the person who's going to get sick, and that's the one you need to concentrate on, that's the one you need to treat. The walking worried are now absolved and they can move on. That's the PhD program and the Prometheus program. And then the mobile analytic program, which is the box that you ultimately need for your forward first providers. I don't want to discount the other elements that we had talked about. I know I don't want to take up too much of your time, we're a little bit behind. But I want to point out that the sustainment issue is a serious one. Because our peer adversaries, in fact, do control our supply of many of our medications. Tetracycline is not made in the United States. Cipro is not made in the United States. Those are two very important antibiotics that we use today to meet them. They're made elsewhere. Tetracycline, I mean, when I was a kid, admittedly, that was a long time ago, but when I was a kid, tetracycline cost about six cents a pill. Six cents a pill on, the, on things. Go look today, right now, go Google it. And you'll find out at a bottle of 500 tetracycline tablets, you can order it online, costs $1,800 a bottle. That gives you a flavor of what happens when our peer adversaries have control over our manufacturing capability. DARPA recognized us. We started the, the Battlefield Medicine Program so that you can build a machine that can make medicines on demand um, that's doing very well. We have two, one that will make the Cipro and uh, tetracycline type medicines, and Biomod, which is, uh, will make the protein-based ones, such as a vaccine. The point is, is you want to bring that back and you want to distribute that. When there's a pandemic, the last thing you want is people driving all over the place trying to get there. You want to be able to walk to a giant or walk to a firehouse and be able to get the medicines they need, and that's what this whole idea was about. This is something that we're doing with BARDA. God bless BARDA. BART is taking this and grabbing it, this problem by the horns, and they're running down with it. And so I want to say again, these are elements, too, that we can't forget are really important elements to this whole response concept. So I won't, I'll stop here, and I'll come back to where are some of the things that we need to go from here. One is transition. We have talked about it again and again and again. We have to find a sustainable model for this, whatever it may be, of any of these things, i.e., it has to either be by the government, that's possible, but even better will be a commercial market. And DARPA works hard to try to find commercial transition partners. Why is that? This is the size it is and not the bag phone that we all remember because it would made a commercial market. The U.S. Army was the only one making the bag phone. Guess what it would look like? It'd be the suitcase phone. So right now, it's this because of a commercial transition partner. We have to find ways to do that. That is not easy. That is hard. That is very hard. 
DARPA is great. I love DARPA. I mean, I'm a DARPA geek. I get it. I've been there. For, I was there for 13 years. But DARPA has a very narrow mission focus. It just does. I mean, we have to do all the other stuff that DARPA does. The biotechnology office, which I was the founding director of, I'm really proud that this was an element of that portfolio. But really, this is a bigger problem than that. Our good friends at the Asper, Bob Cadillac, his name is being used multiple times. He's a genius. Bob and Barda have taken this on, and they've actually created Drive. Drive is a DARPA-like element of Barda. Thank God they're doing this. We need something like this. We need a group that can say yes. There's plenty of people we can say no to. Just go to the post office. You know? And so what we want at Barda is actually Barda needs to be resourced up for this. And so I'm going to campaign hard to try to get resourcing for Barda to be resourced up. And then you would ask, should there be a DARPA-like um, activity within HHS, and I would argue there should be. You shouldn't have to depend on the Department of Defense to do these things. The uh, HHS should be doing these things. So a DARPA-like model in the government in HHS, small like DARPA is. DARPA is small. DARPA is, a, a, you know, as you know, a $2.5 billion agency. It's not a $38 billion agency. It's very small. But in the end of the day, small, lean, and mean, the ability to say yes and to attack these problems head on is really the way we're going to get there. We can talk about them until we're blue in the face. But the goal of America really is the innovation capacity that we have to find solutions. Thank you. Here, here. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Governor, you want to start? Oh, thanks. I've got to tell you, I was absolutely intrigued by this. You both referred one to a heart attack, one to this. Um, about a year ago, I used this for self-diagnosis. I woke up one morning and I said, I'm not feeling very well. I wonder if I'm having a heart attack. Uh, I was, a, I mean, so long story short, the whole notion of having a capability at your side um, is, is really, is critical. And we're going to get there. I guess the point is, what's, a, what's the quickest route to get there? Is it, uh, I mean, presumably we need, do we need BARDA, good funding with BARDA? Uh, do we need to create a market? Um, you know, I, I want we want private sector, we want commercial market to do it, but they're profit driven, so we have to create a market. So, very interested in your perspectives as to what is the combination of both public and private and market related environment that would stimulate the kind of accelerated growth in the diagnostic technologies you're talking about. It's again a multifaceted response, but you're right that this will actually become a sort of the, the Siri of healthcare in its own way. We're already seeing an emergent field now of digital psychiatry, where much more accurate uh, identification of categories of mental illness can now actually begin to be monitored in this way. Moving it into the infectious disease arena does require, as Dr. Ling said, that you've actually got to deal with at least a biological sample. Where you're dealing with agents that we know are common today, yes, you can develop. The, the, in fact, there are if, uh, prototype units that function very well against those bugs which are with us all the time in emergency rooms. But once you begin to start talking about the exotics, and also having to scan a spectrum of them, then the technology is here to be leveraged, but it then becomes the economics of the incentive. Because if, if I have a company, it's going to cost me 150 to $200 million to develop that multiplex test and to constantly update it. Not only have I got to have market pricing, which is sufficient for me to recover 
that, and if I'm a publicly traded company, by definition, I've got to make a profit, too. But we're trapped already in a world of reimbursement, which uh, Congressman Greenwood knows very well, where much of the modern diagnostics are still struggling for existence simply because they're not afforded the profit margin uh, because essentially they're titrated back to the old-style diagnostics that you have when you have your annual physical, your sodium, your potassium, your creatinine, so-called uni-analyte tests. But when you move to these very sophisticated multiplex tests, which as Dr. Ling said, you've also got to get a PMA approval in most instances from the FDA, uh, you're, that, that is a protracted, high-cost investment. And without the level of reward for investment, it's exactly the same situation uh, that we faced with antibiotics. I was chairman of R&D at SmithKline, then the biggest producer of antibiotics in the world. And I have scars on my back trying to keep the antibiotic business alive, but I lost simply because there was no market. The market for antibiotics evaporated. It was clear, I made the statement in 1995, we will be facing massive antibiotic resistance problems mm -hmm. circa 2015, because as Dr. Ling said, this is just nature's evolutionary cycle at work. So now we're hunting for new antibiotics, which with the fairest wind in our back will be with us 2018 to 2022. When those are here, we need to start thinking about the antibiotics of 2040 because we will have a resistance cycle that will repeat. But coming back to that, so market incentives eroded antibiotic uh, R&D, hence why we're in the problems today with antibiotic resistance, and absent uh, suitable commercial incentives to develop diagnostics. I made reference to oncology. That's a very rate-limiting factor in the development of sophisticated molecular diagnostics in oncology today. Uh, an infectious disease, the problem's even greater. It's really about risk. It's always about managing risk. And so we do have to engage the commercial private sector. That, that is absolutely true. The only way this is going to sustain, it can't be sustained purely on government. However, the government can help that transition into the private sector. And the way it does that, very simply, is reduces the risk of the upfront part that we're trying to say is that when you develop any of these things, a diagnostic test, there's a development cost. We get it. But subsequent to that, there's also regulatory cost. And, and that is because the FDA has to do their very important work. We, we all celebrate what they do. But that comes with a cost. If you can reduce those front-end costs, it makes the transition much, much uh, easier. And you reduce risk, of course, to the uh, commercial entity that's going to take it on. It will get through FDA because the government's helping fund it going through the, that, that, that process. So that's why I say that for BARDA, which is trying to do all of this on, honestly, on very, very little money, it would be very great if we could somehow support BARDA and the ASPR R&D budget up a little bit more. I'm not saying make them, you know, $20 billion agency. I'm saying, you know, they have 500 million, give them another 500. I mean, that's, you know, that's dust compared to some of the things we talk about for something like this. And we don't have an, an equivalent of a DARPA at HHS. I think that we really should. I think that would be, uh, you know, something that would be, and it, remember, all of DOD, DOD as big and monstrous as it is, DARPA, is only a $2.5 billion agency compared to everything else that they do. But look at what they've achieved. And I'm just saying that this is kind of where we need to be because it's the only way we're going to make it palatable for the commercial sector to take out. The commercial sector will sustain it. They'll carry it for the next 10 or 20 years. That's awesome. The government should not do that. That should be in the purview of the commercial sector. But we just have to make it so that they can carry it over so the front, upfront risk and cost is reduced. 
So, if I may, Mr. Chairman, I, yes, would just, I would just endorse what Dr. Ling said with regard to BADA. It has been the one group that has been prepared to exhibit innovation in the diagnostic mm -hmm. space uh, and made requisite investments uh, that, in fact, are then bring uh, and working with the private sector very effectively. So, um, neither of you uh, think that we need to uh, alter BARDA. In other words, that, that the basic BARDA model is a good model, it just needs to be uh, better funded? Is that uh, right? So, they just started something called DRIVE, which is their new element that is, that is their, innovation th um, uh, their innovation unit. They actually stood that up in only 90 days. It, it just shows you that the, under the leadership of Rick Bright and Bob Cadillac what they're capable of doing. So I would say right now, give them their chance. They're trying to do it on nickels and dimes that they're scraping together from, you know, from, that they're finding. But honestly, just give them their chance. And for far too long, they were not allowed to undertake some of the most fundamental research which is needed to move in this translational sequence. And not only DRIVE, but another initiative that they've created called CARB-X, which relates to antibiotic resistance, again reflects forward thinking and a recognition of the challenges of commercialization. Dr. Ling, in, in the work that you did uh, at the Biological Technologies Office for BARDA, um, DARPA. DARPA, sorry, <laughs> I was going to ask, did you, were you able uh, to interest the uh, uh, commercial Entities and taking that work and translated. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, sir, Senator. Um, so a lot of the things on the adept, for example, that program that I talked about, more in the therapeutic side, they had a relationship with GSK and Novartis to take some of the things forward. Oh. The uh, mobile analytical platform. There was a uh, there was efforts to get Abbott. Abbott actually was going to take it on. I don't. I, right. I, to my understanding, though, Abbott has not continued to forward, but they actually assumed control over it from that little company. So we got Abbott. The nice thing that the government can do is make those introductions, make these marriages, because, you know, a lot of times the big companies don't know where they are. But uh, in some cases, they're going to be direct spinouts. The one long sustained genomic vaccine that, that came out of this whole effort um, has started out uh, as a stand up by itself company called DNARX. Uh, the uh, Hedges platform uh, is a one shot lifelong immunity kind of thing. And uh, based upon non-viral, that's the key point, that that's another long pole in the tent, right? Is using a virus to introduce genomic material, and you make get sick as a dog. So this is a non-viral approach, and that spun out, and it's kind of on its own. So it is, uh, there's ability to both transition it center to large companies, such as the Abbots of the world, the GSKs, and also to spin it out as a small stand-up company. Remember, Facebook started as a couple of guys in the basement of, uh, of Harvard. I saw a movie about that. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. It was a good one. It was a good one. <laughs> so uh, what about the problem that Dr. Post mentioned that we've wrestled with, which is how do you create incentives in the private sector to produce medical countermeasures or diagnostics for which there may not be a, a market unless there's a crisis? That's always a problem. Uh, you know, DOD has that same problem, Senator, as you know. Um, so DOD... Um, when we were at DARPA, so the other part of DARPA that's building um, weapon-based systems, for example, there's really no commercial market for it, at least certainly not an ethical commercial market for it. So 
how do you sustain those markets? It does exist. You know, for example, I'll give you a clear. So, for example, manufacturing technology, the Mantech office, right, um, underwrites the, uh, uh, the the creation of the brick and mortar necessary to build certain elements of the industry. And then second, they also look for ways that the government can also help underwrite it as being a customer, for example, of certain pieces of this equipment, not the other than the missile itself, some, some elements of the missile, for example. Um, for example, the lens. The, the lens, as you know, is really important on the JDAM uh, bomb, but, you know, you, I mean, we don't use too many of those. So how do you sustain that business? And so, of course, they underwrote them to develop those to become um, uh, lenses for uh, lights, uh, lighting fixtures. So in essence, there are ways to do this. We have to just be a little bit more innovative in our thinking. We do have a model that exists. We do have existent legislation that allows it. It's just a matter of policy that's kind of blocking us right now. And policy is hard. Legislative changes are really hard. I have to tell you guys that. You know better than anybody. So since the, the regulations exist to allow this to happen, we just have to be a little bit more agile in terms of applying them and be a little bit more flexible in allowing BARDA and these other folks to do their job within the law, but perhaps a different interpretation of it. And as we heard at a recent uh, presentation of the panel on the new smallpox vaccine, uh, guarantee purchase agreements are uh, absolutely essential if you're going to be engaging in something for which there's no civilian market, and as we heard in the smallpox example, it cannot be held hostage to the annual budget cycle, otherwise your investors are not going to support the uh, engagement in those sorts of activities. So guaranteed purchase and guaranteed sustainability of funding for the projected R&D cycle are absolutely essential. Tom? Well, that was actually going to be my question. Dr. Ling, uh, Dr. Post just said it, I think. How Could you just clarify your view of the importance of multi-year funding to ensure that market? Oh, no, I, I, I couldn't be more supportive of, the, of what Dr. Post just said and the point of multi-year funding. That the, These year-in, year-out cycles are really very disruptive to anybody who's doing early R&D and ultimately to the sustainment model. I, I mentioned to you manufacturing technology a moment ago that's out of the uh, OSD of the DOD. That actually has... As you know, that, that money has no year to it. That's actually money that is was legislated by the Congress, um, and it was money that actually has no timeline to it. So when a company gets uh, manufacturing technology dollars, i.e. Mantec dollars, to build their brick and mortar, that dollar does not expire. That's incredibly helpful for them as they build out their business model and, in fact, build out the sustainability of their business model and takes away that upfront risk. Once they know they have those dollars, and investors know they have those dollars, you've taken away a lot of risk from those people and they're able to do the build out. So, and Mantech does exist, so evidently there is legal precedence to do this and we should take advantage of that. And just to be even more clear, when we say multi-year funding, how would you define multi-year? In, in the cycles that we're in, they're four-year cycles. Four, At is that sufficient? Four. At least four. At least four, and again, I think for diagnostics, four would, should be enough, but in therapeutics, it is possibly a more extended cycle, but if you were, if you, as it would be if you were in industry, you would say, here is the project, we've approved it on the basis of claim technical feasibility with a projected duration of X, 
and then you add to that the what you think should be the time for regulatory review, and that should be the cycle. So for certain products, it could be two years plus regulatory time. For others, four years plus regulatory time. In the therapeutic cycle and vaccine cycle, it may have to be longer. But the point I was trying to make, Senator, is that if you know, I as a government um, um, contract officer and I put money against this line, if it doesn't expire, if it doesn't have a, uh, a sense to it, I could literally put four years worth of funding against that line and then say, look, it doesn't expire at the end of one year. That, uh, because we do have to uh, abide by the cycle of the federal budget. Totally get it. Um, but that's the way you could do it without having to disrupt the whole idea of the, of, the, of the yearly cycle of the federal budget. You can put money in there. It won't expire. Right. a la right. manufacturing technology dollars do. And that way you, you don't have to create new legislation at all. Right. Well, we do it all. The, we've done it before. We can certainly do it here. Yeah. Could I just go back to the conversation just a moment ago on the comparison between BARDA and DARPA? Uh, I've always looked at DARPA as sort of the, just one of the, 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 the best examples of what research can do with a government sponsorship and just the extraordinary efforts. And I congratulate you, Dr. Ling, and the amazing work done there. Um, but you said that, 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 that today BARDA still has a number of impediments that keep it from becoming a DARPA. Could you just be more specific with regard to what those impediments are and what we'd have to do to make BARDA a DARPA in, in, in the same realm that, that it is today? Yes, yeah, certainly. There's really only two things that I would say. Number one is philosophy, and the second one is budget. Philosophy. So, philosophy. philosophy. DARPA goes in with the attitude that we – so the, at DARPA, we always, you'll like this. We ask – first question, whenever somebody wants to do something is, I always ask, is it cool? If it's not cool, don't do it. I don't care how important it is, it's got to be cool, all right? An invisible airplane, that's cool. We should do that. Definitely do that. The stealth, stealth technology, right? Um, you know, uh, in my world, a brain-controlled robot, uh, that's pretty cool, all right? So that was, of course, the prosthetics program. But the point was is if that's a very different philosophy because that's a question of asking what do you want? What do you really want? Not what, what is possible and not what's probable, but what is it that you want? Right? So that's the first. Mm -hmm. So it's a different philosophy. And then the second part is if it's cool, then by golly, say yes. Find some way, come hell or high water, to say yes. Because any fool can say no. Right? I mean, that's the easiest thing. No, saying no basically absolves you from doing anything. No, let's go home. All right? But yes is hard. You've actually got to figure out now what, how you're going to do it. So that is DARPA's f philosophical attitude is how do you say yes? And we struggle a lot to say yes. Other federal agencies, don't share that same philosophy. Uh, I'm, look, we, I mean, we're all feds here. We get it. But the point is, is that the very first step. Barton, to their credit, is doing that transition. They're pivoting towards that. They, they do have a lot of legacy things they have to deal with. I get it. But Drive, to me, is an example of where they're trying to pick out a section and say, we are willing to take the risk. We're willing to find the cool, and we're willing to find the way to say yes. That's what Drive is. But Drive's second big problem is, they have limited dollars. They're, they're trying to take on biodefense. I mean, this is not a little problem, right? I mean, so with that big problem, they need an adequate amount of resources to go take the risk. Because when you take risk is really when you're going to push the boundaries, but you have to accept it. You're going to fail sometimes. And you don't fail because you're stupid, and you don't fail because you're lazy. You fail because the science is hard, and that's okay. That's really, that should be okay. If you don't swing for the fence, 
you're not going to be the home run hitter. But 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 is it even possible to say yes with such limited resources today? No, that's just it. So I mean, you know, they're, they're dealing with twenty million dollars. I mean, that's they had to carve this out of their. They're not a wealthy agency by any stretch of the means, right. right? And they have this big problem they're trying to attack. I mean, Bob Cadillac is is, is a genius, but he's not a magician. I mean, he. I mean, it'd be, it'd be great. It'd be great if he was, uh, you know, uh, um, um, you know, Harry Potter and could, you know, ding and there we go. But it's, that's not going to work that way. So, got to give him the resources. I mean, Bob Cadillac and Rick Bright, just give them the resources. And and if you believe that they're going to squander it or, or or silly, then why did you to employ them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, first things first. If we really believe they're as wonderful as they are doing the job there, then we should adequately resource. That's one thing DARPA does: pick the brilliant people and resource them. Because the best way to damn someone to failure is done to resource them. So I would argue. Seriously, and I would, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in front of you, and I will say in an open uh, forum that I believe that the DARP, uh, the BARDA, the ASPR R&D budget should be doubled. Absolutely. I think it would be an incredible good spending of money. It's not a huge sum of money relative to what, the things we do. It's, you know, it's not a billion dollars. It's under a billion dollars. And, but what they could achieve with that would be what we're talking about, Senator. So, Dr. Ling, I just wish you had a little more energy. And that is... <laughs> But I, but I think add, adding to what's already been said, there has been a uh, turf and rice bowl issue that Barter has had to face, namely the belief that the front end of innovation is only going to come from NIH and that they only pick it up after that's occurred. They're now getting into the early stage, which is where they need to be, because that's where the true innovation is going to come. And they've, they may have to ask for forgiveness, even with an expanded budget, but the bottom line is the fact that, uh, somewhat provocatively, NIH has not been the source of innovation in this particular field. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Tom, Jim. So should I assume then that DARPA's working on maglev skateboards? They're very something, cool. So, something closer. <laughs> <laughs> A close session, we'll talk about it. So we talked about the, some of the challenges to um, in bringing forth the new diagnostics and reimbursement challenges, scientific challenges. Um, talk about um, the, the regulatory challenges, because, George, you talked about, you know, it could be $100 million, $200 million costs, and as we know from the, from the drug developments, and that all come, most of that's spent in clinical trials. And, and I'm interested, I, I probably should know more about this than I do, but, but, you know, how do you demonstrate efficacy in front of the FDA for surge diagnostics and uh, uh, and diagnostics where you have very, uh, you can't use placebo, you have very low incidence of, uh, in terms of the patient population. Are, are there things that we should be thinking about in terms of refer- reforms in the regulatory regime? No, I think it's often very easy to pick on the FDA, but I think certainly with Commissioner Gottlieb's flexibility, I'm less concerned about the issue of the regulatory framework. <coughs> Excuse me. The uh, uh, as you know, there are two categories, the so-called 510K and then the full pre-market authorization. The types of tests we're talking about are undoubtedly going to have to go to a full PMA. The challenges, I think, are going to be both for the industry and for the regulators is the fact that those tests are going to have to be constantly updated. So if you've got V1, V2, VN, are you going to have to go back through the whole process again for V2, V3, VN? I think we're seeing much more flexibility from the agency to accept that the V1 was the predicate, as it's called, and then these are refinements. You've got to demonstrate scientific validity, but you're not going to have to go back through the whole process. 
The other complexity that lurks is that many of these are also as much not about just the test itself in terms of its technical validity, in terms of sensitivity and specificity, it's also going to be increasingly linked with software. So you're going to have a duality of the actual test itself coupled with the computational capacities that go with that test. And so I think that the agency uh, is starting to wrestle with that one, which of course goes well beyond infectious disease because as uh, Governor Ridge said, so many elements now of digital therapeutics where you're linking a decision based upon information. Uh, so the agency, I think, is spending a lot of time uh, intellectually to deal with that. But So I'm less worried about uh, this constraint from the regulatory standpoint. Ken? Thank you, Jim. Just briefly, Dr. Ling, um, I was intrigued by your comments about the ability to predict who's going to get infected. Mm -hmm. um, and if you could, in layman's terms, recognizing I took the same science class as <laughs> Senator Lieberman, yeah. um, what, what are you referring to there? Yeah, so uh, thank you, sir. The, what I'm referring to is that illness begins at, a, at the cell level. And then when enough cells get sick, the body starts to fail. I think that's the easiest way to put it. So is there a way to measure early, early on that these cells are starting to fail before the body does? And if you can determine that these cells are starting to fail, that means that you have many, many days before they, the, 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 a, a, a large number of those cells fell enough that you were actually getting sick or, or something. And so that's, in fact, how the, uh, the Duke guys pivoted on that. It was really very ingenious. What they did is they said, okay, if cells are failing, the body's obviously going to try to fix it. They're obviously going to try to fix it. If they're successful in fixing it, you're good. If you're unsuccessful at failing, uh, uh, fixing it, in other words, the, the body's chosen incorrectly on how to respond to this thing, and the body therefore will fail, and i.e. get sick. So there should be two pathways that can be delineated by doing these early measurements. And in fact, that's how they did it. And this is in the open literature, and they actually showed that they could do this. They had to go to England, by the way, to test this. You'll like this. They actually, the way they tested it, they went to England, and they got a virus, H1N1 Brisbane, and they actually squirted it into people's noses. I, this, is the, this is the truth. And so I, only in English would allow you to do this, I think. And so, um, <laughs> and, and squirted in people's noses, and then they followed them. And they found that some got, didn't get sick, and some did get sick, and that's how they were able to uh, identify these markers. And these markers are great, because man has you know, only been on Earth about 50,000 years, and viruses have been around for like billions. The response is actually very, very um, um, homogeneous, from you to me to Dr. Post. Our bodies respond the same way to viruses and differently to bacteria. And in fact, we respond very differently to one type of virus versus another. So this approach that these, the Duke guys had figured out is, in fact, really remarkable. You, and you can see the applications. And this is where we come back for viruses, obviously, that they'll tell you that, oh, these people are getting sick and they're getting sick from this, and, they're gonna, uh, and, they, and, and this is how they need to respond. But also, you could conceivably use that for things like cancer and heart disease and the like. So it's, uh, it's really... This approach toward biodefense has so many other potential applications, too. So that's why I'm a little less worried about the commercialization if we can get them over the hump. So I will, plead, I will plead the fifth in terms of squirting stuff up at people's <laughs> nostrils. But, uh, the, uh, but uh, the, uh, the, this issue of the fact that you know, by the time we begin to feel a little achy, you could use a different S word, uh, when you're starting to feel ill, uh, 
your body has already started to send out signals with things like called lymphokines and cytokines at least 48 hours ahead of that. There are now sensitive assays for detecting at least 60 of those in the bloodstreams. The, uh, as Dr. Ling said, it's also very important to be able to differentiate between viruses and bacteria so that you're not then just dispensing antibiotics like candy uh, for viral diseases when it's going to not be of any value. Our colleagues in large-scale animal agriculture are far ahead of us in this regard insofar as uh, this is not exactly the most palatable version, but uh, the large chicken farms actually have robots that go up and down the line doing a thermal scan on animals. And if there is any abnormality, the robot grabs the chicken. And I won't tell you about the rest, but the robot grabs the chicken. Our friends, our friends, Very cool. our, 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 our friends in the our friends in the cattle industry have uh, collars that measure whether an animal is eating, the frequency of eating, mobility. So they're actually able to identify an ill animal long before, because the economics of the herd are the issue at hand. So whether it be overt sensors on the outside. Uh, or these biochemical molecular markers out of blood uh, or saliva. Uh, these are very active areas of research. And as Dr. Ling said, this goes well beyond infectious disease. It enables you to pick up a number of other diseases in the pre-symptomatic state. Dr. Ling, uh, earlier uh, you said it would be great if HHS had uh, DARPA type. Yeah. So would that be in place of BARDA? Oh, no, no, sir. No. Uh, you know, when I say that it would be great if HHS had a, a DARPA-like, yeah. I mean, if you think about all the other problems that we face today, autism, you know, pancreatic cancer, right. on and on it goes. I mean, there's such a, this would be great. If, I mean, because when I was at DARPA, all these people would come and they would say that these are horrible things. Like pancreatic cancer, it's a terrible thing, right? We haven't, or again, uh, a uh, glioblastoma multiforme, GBM, yeah. right? no significant improvement over the last 50 years. And wouldn't it be great if DARPA could take this on? It'd be awesome if DARPA could take this on, but DARPA is just this big of an agency. So a HARPA or a, a DARPA health or whatever you want to call it would be great. Yeah. However, biodefense is a serious problem. It should be, it, it, it should have its own focus. It should have its, it, it's, it's, it should be, have its own place. And I think that BARDA has the mission for it. BARDA is ready to take on that mission. They've already proven themselves. Okay. And I would say that that also alleviates this Dar uh, health DARPA from having to do that and can focus on things like autism and pancreatic cancer and GBMs. Thank you. I want to follow on on Tom's question about your energy level. Could you give us your diet? Uh, <laughs> yes, <I'm sorry. laughs> this reminds me, Bob Dole used to say in the Senate about Strom Thurmond, who was then, you know, 96, that he followed Strom around all day, and he did whatever Strom did. You know, if Strom had a banana, Dole had a banana. So, <laughs> and, and God bless him, he's still with us. Yeah, 95. Right. All right, you've been, uh, both of you have been great. Uh, we're proud church's member of the family. That uh, cool. how, how You're cool. Right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you may you. not be Thank a robot, you. but you're cool. That's right. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Uh, no. Okay, we'll go to the last panel now. Powers that be, ladies, should we have a short break? Should we skip the break? What do you want to do? Five minutes. All right, Asha, you're the boss. We'll be back at 2.30.
Ah, there we go. Thank you. Okay, this is uh, it's been a very uh, productive, informative day. And again, I thank everybody. This is our last panel, a great panel on intelligence and uh, information sharing. We have Kathleen Riley, who's a, a U.S. Navy retired senior professional staff at the Select Committee on Intelligence of the Senate and former professional staff of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence in the House side. Duncan McGill, a PhD, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Army, retired, uh, dean of a suspiciously named educational institution. <laughs> the rich... College of Intelligence Studies and Applied Sciences at Mercyhurst University. It's a, it's a great tribute and totally deserved, obviously, by Governor Ridge that, uh, and quite consistent with his public service that this exists. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Kerr, PhD, Director of Pandemics and Emerging Threats Office, Office of Global Affairs at the uh, Department of HHS. So we're really delighted to have you here. We have a good solid hour, maybe a little bit more. And uh, Ms. Riley, let's begin with you. Is this on? Yeah. Thank you very much for, for having us. Um, I think I speak for my fellow panelists that this is an important issue and uh, something that the country needs to address. Um, I'm Kathleen Riley from the Senate Intelligence Committee staff. Uh, in my oversight responsibilities that were passed on to me um, uh, a year ago when I took, uh, took the seat from uh, Dr. Bob Kedlick, um, was, uh, you know, you now have the mantle for uh, bio and biosecurity. Uh, the unfortunate piece about this is that intelligence lives in the dark corners of the world, um, where we look at things with how the enemy can attack us, what are our vulnerabilities, what are our susceptibilities, and, and how can we defend against those? How can we ensure that the American people are, and our allies are prepared for something that could be weaponized or, uh, an issue where a uh, foreign adversary would like to in, uh, introduce a vulnerability into our ecosystem that could cause great harm. So uh, in the National Blueprint for Biodefense, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel, there was um, recommendation number six and recommendation number 16, which uh, Dr. George has asked me to, to address. So recommendation six really talks about um, how to focus, really focus, biodefense uh, in the intelligence community. Now, the head of the intelligence community, uh, the DNI, right now, as we were talking earlier uh, with Senator Lieberman and Senator Daschle, is part of the WMD group. So it's really, you know, it's a sub-project inside um, the WMD group. And it really needs to be brought out into the light. It needs to be focused, as before we were talking about uh, in the prior panel, about focusing uh, biodefense. But in the intelligence community, to focus it, quote, left of boom, to quote my, my DOD colleagues, uh, what are our vulnerabilities, what are our susceptibilities, and what are our adversaries' intent? And then what is the government's duty to warn? So recognizing this issue as a... Um, an intelligence security issue, national security issue that's vital to our national security interests is paramount and identifying pinning the rose on someone's lapel to take responsibility and as an executive agency and uh, what those missions and roles may be. 
The recommendation number six uh, recommends that the DNI appoint a NIM to centralize bioissues. And uh, there's some further study that's being done right now. Uh, Dr. Bob Kedlick uh, is looking at this and, um, and his counterparts inside of the Director of National Intelligence uh, are also looking at this. The NIM would have to look at issues that are you know, before the attack. What are our abilities to protect against an attack? And then what the, what the intelligence community's response would be and what their roles and responsibilities would be to an attack. Um, raising it to the level that it's a discrete and focused area that not only biodefense begins at home with things like, you know, the cigarette pack warning that says the Surgeon General says that uh, smoking kills. Well, what happens to your DNA when you send it away to 23andMe and Ancestry.com? Where does it go? You know, what is the government's duty to warn where DNA leaves our shores? A whole of government approach is, is absolutely necessary. But unfortunately, um, as uh, some of the senators on the committee would say, a whole of government means none of government. So really understanding who the executive agency is and where those missions and roles and responsibilities are in the intelligence community and beyond the intelligence community and who they're responsible to is absolutely necessary, outlining those and making sure that you have a policeman with a carrot and a stick to make sure everyone is doing their job. I'm also a cattle rancher um, on the weekends. I have a, a herd, a small herd up in uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, my husband lives up there full time, and I go and see him part time. But looking at looking at uh, looking at cattle and looking at birds and the health of our livestock is also very interesting because those things can cross over into humans. And it's one area where the intelligence community really isn't looking. So it's one area that where I think we can, we can pull on and really understand how that human and animal interaction happens. It's not something that the Department of Defense is really looking at, and it's unfortunately not something that the intelligence community is looking at. So um, I was listening to Dr. Post's remarks, and I think he's, uh, he's spot on. It's something we really need to look at, avian flu, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, treating bio, bio, the bio threat, and our biodefense is a critical national security infrastructure issue is absolutely necessary, both in the intelligence community and beyond the intelligence community. Local law enforcement, how do you respond? What's your duty to warn? How do police officers, what are the police officers' vulnerabilities uh, going to be? New York City Police Department, for example, if anthrax were to break out and and they couldn't respond. How would we, as the intelligence community, have a duty to warn the rest of the community? Um, recommendation 16 talks a little bit more about um, how do we ready our forces that are to respond. Again, the intelligence community, where is the duty to warn uh, throughout the first responders and um, the hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and those that would have to react? What is the mission and role of the intelligence community and how do we share that information? Sometimes uh, information that is considered uh, very um, close hold, uh, pharmaceutical companies and specific recipes and cocktails that they have for their medicines, how do we protect those? Um, one of the areas in the National Biodefense Strategy 
there were five specific goals with recommendations in each one of the goals. The intelligence community really only addresses goals one, two, and three. And there was a, a common thread between all three of these goals that talks about risk. What preventative measures do we need to take in advance and how do we measure risk? So it, it's a good question and it's been brought up in the previous panel. Um, both Dr. Ling and Dr. Post talked about preventative measures. Um, the cowler, for example, uh, which is the, the, uh, the device that the cows wear that tell you when your herd is sick so you don't pass from uh, one cow to the next cow. Um, avian flu, for example, how do you know what strain of avian flu you have and, and how do you share that with local law enforcement? What is the risk that we have in our vulnerabilities as an American people uh, to certain strains? For example, if um, the collection of DNA in, in the United States of America that is um, running rampant for uh, 23andMe and uh, you know, Ancestry.com and some other, uh, some other companies that do DNA analysis, a people's most interesting subject is themselves. So everyone is very interested in where they came from and who they are. And we're probably the most diverse community in the world here in the United States of America, and that's a, a wonderful advantage that we have, but it also induces a, a risk. So what are the risks of having such a diverse community? Can uh, a foreign adversary pinpoint and target a specific group of people in the United States and get them sick or hurt them in some way uh, that maybe we can't really talk about here? Uh, zinc fingers and CRISPR-Cas9 using gene editing tools uh, genome sequencing labs that are being bought up by foreign governments that there's only very few genome sequencing labs left in the United States that are owned by Americans. What kind of a risk does that induce into our American enterprise? Um, missions and roles, um, again, addressing risk. Missions and roles, you, you sit and count up how many people have responsibility and how many people are, quote, doing bio. And it's the list I have right now is 27 different people. So how are they communicating with each other? Do they have a common place? Is there a app for that? Is there a cloud infrastructure or a place where you can sandbox theories and ideas collectively, but protected environment so that some of those outcomes aren't known to our adversaries? Um, the role for the, in, uh, for the intelligence community is, uh, is a hard one to address, and both uh, the chairman and the vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee are always amazed at how much biodefense and biointelligence and genomics are involved in everything that we do every day. The problem is it does, is, it does involve itself in every aspect of the intelligence community spectrum. So how do we bring focus to all of these areas, everything from missiles to makeup, everything that happens in the intelligence community, how do we bring this all together and focus it? The recommendation in the uh, Blue Ribbon Study Panel says appoint an M. Pin the rose on someone's lapel and make them responsible. And this is an area that we're going to look into very, very seriously on the Senate Intel Committee. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, very helpful. We have questions, I'm sure. Doc uh, Dr. Dean McGill, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Senator Lieberman, Governor Ridge, and distinguished members of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. It's an honor and a privilege to address you this afternoon on the topic of intelligence and information sharing in the complex, multidisciplinary environment of biodefense. For 35 years, I've been engaged in the complexities of weapons of mass destruction, 
first as a nuclear weapons maintainer in our army, before moving on to explosive ordnance disposal and eventually countering proliferation. And in the last 13 years, educating others on the study of threats while in the National Intelligence University and now as Dean of the Ridge College of Intelligence Studies and Applied Sciences at Mercyhurst. During my journey, I found that the United States has two primary existential threats concerning technology. First, and the one we are most prepared to see, study, and understand are nuclear weapons with the massive destructive capability and long-lasting residual effects. Complicating response to these incidents is the disruption and removal of our infrastructure for responding to them. The second, and the reason for today's discussion, are biological threats. Although not complicated by the impact from destruction of existing infrastructure, biological threats complicate response because of their impact on those that use the infrastructure and in cases of replicating bacteria and viruses, the capability to extend their reach beyond the point of origin. Biological threats can occur from nature, which principally, I believe the health community is well-focused, as we've heard much today. My focus has been on one of man-caused events surrounding bioweapons. The National Blueprint for Biodefense and National Biodefense Strategy are important steps in moving forward towards a comprehensive program. <clears throat> Intelligence into biological weapons is a complex, multivariable problem that cannot be understood solely by understanding disease. The medical side of this problem is reactive in nature. To be proactive and prepared to understand or counter the myriad biological threats requires understanding the system of systems that they comprise. The systems include our research science, engineering, management, production, storage and logistics, weapons design and development, education and doctrine of use, policy, financial activities, as well as medical preparation and response. As we move forward with the implementation of the National Biodefense Strategy, I believe the key to understanding these system of systems is integration of the disciplines into a task-organized team to better understand what we know as well as where our intelligence gaps are. The gaps may be in knowledge about the science or knowledge about the intelligence targets. In all cases, the intersection of technology with humans is what interests me. What matters is who and how the technology will be used for nefarious purpose. By task organizing our team, we understand how to map the threats across the system. We can identify intelligence gaps and better understand how to prioritize limited resources into collection and analysis programs within the intelligence community. However, I believe the critical outcome of bringing together the disciplines is increased intellectual diversity. And we know that in both medicine and intelligence, increasing our intellectual diversity, diversity spurs increased creativity. By integrating our expertise, we allow better understanding and communication across the disciplinary boundaries. Couple that with the fact that today, more and more discoveries occur on the overlap of the Venn diagrams of two disciplines begs for an integrated systems approach to studying the biodefense problem. Let me give one small example about which I sometimes ask my students to consider. Today, one of the highly promising areas for treating bacterial infections, correcting genetic problems such as cystic fibrosis, hemophilia or sickle cell diseases, producing biofuels, creating bacteriophages to eliminate malaria-carrying mosquitoes, is CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas9. The enzyme allows much easier gene editing. Researchers can easily alter DNA sequences and modify gene function. CRISPR is generating extreme excitement in the scientific community because it's faster, cheaper, more accurate, and more efficient than other existing genome editing tools. The 
the decreasing cost of entry into this science area increases the amount of research that can be completed, but it also makes more difficult the understanding of where the work is occurring, who is doing it, and for what purpose. Potentially, the disease-fighting benefits of CRISPR are incredible, but there's a threat side to this tool. Unethical governments or organizations may use the techniques to synthesize viruses, allowing the targeting of specific ethnicities with disease or enhancing their genetic traits, as well as the potential for affecting germline stem cells, creating targeted harm or enhancements that are generational. Overlap CRISPR's Venn diagram with the focus on the future advances in artificial intelligence, and you may see a future with the potential for computer-driven design and virtual testing of genetic editing that may eliminate the need for laboratory testing until prototyping. The computer can drive the research based on programming from man and uh, the lessons it learns as it moves through the programming. The disciplines required to study the extent of this problem are not fungible. Moreover, they are not fungible across the other WMD paradigms. We need a centrally coordinated capability to map, plan, prioritize, and finance the collection, analysis, and reporting on biodefense-related systems. Thus, assuming the appropriate priority and resourcing, a national intelligence manager for biological threats would have the ability to create that interdisciplinary team within the framework of a discrete intelligence topic while addressing bystanders and distributing assessments necessary for the enterprise. In addition, one of the components within the organization could be dedicated to intelligence sharing to all levels of our governmental structures with needed intelligence information. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thanks for your uh, comments on the proposal for a national intelligence uh, manager for biological threats. Needless to say, we're interested. Uh, Dr. Kerr, uh, thanks for being here. You've had a lot of uh, a very uh, relevant experience uh, to biodefense, so we're grateful <laughs> for your testimony now. Mr. Chairman and distinguished panels, it meant to panel members, it is indeed an honor to be with you. And I really appreciate this opportunity to share my thoughts with you in seeking to advance our nation's biodefense intelligence efforts. I will state up front that my comments are my own views and not the and with the experiences that I share and do not reflect the position of US government departments at which I have worked or currently work. Mm -hmm. You asked the panelists to address the Blue Ribbon Panel's recommendations 6 and 16 to improve the management of the biological intelligence enterprise. It is with incredible remorse that I would posit there is no biological intelligence enterprise anymore. Your report notes that in 2005, the Rob Silberman Commission on the Intelligence Capabilities of the United States regarding weapons of mass destruction described in detail the failings and weaknesses of the intelligence community regarding biological threats. In Chapter 13, their report, they recommended that the newly created Director of National Intelligence, or DNI, quote, create a deputy within the National Counterproliferation Center, NCPC, who is specifically responsible for biological weapons to ensure the implementation of a comprehensive counter-biological weapons strategy and collections initiative, unquote. In August of 2006, I departed the White House Homeland Security Council's Biodefense Directorate to join ODNI and NCPC as the Deputy Director for Countering Biological Threats, and immediately initiated a review of the IC's policies and programs devoted to countering biothreats. 
Together with the IC's leadership, we produced the first national intelligence strategy for countering biological threats in 2007 to set the vision, goals, objectives, and milestones for the collection, analytic, and science and technology disciplines across the IC agencies. I work closely with one of the most creative intelligence senior officers in the CIA who had initiated and managed the CounterBW program, hence referred to as CBW, where C stands for counter, not chem, since its initial funding in 2002 with full implementation in 2004. Together we produce in budgeted a budget that mapped the strategy's implementation plan and with the DNI's chief financial officer, the Office of Management and Budget, the National Security Council, and the Congressional Intel Committees, Congress appropriated a budget in FY 2008 that more than quadrupled the CounterBW program's 2006 baseline to fund the new and enhanced efforts called out in the strategy. These actions address the Blue Ribbon Panel's recommendations 6A. In less than a year after the strategy's implementation, we had initiated several of the other recommendations from the WMD Commission's report, including the establishment of the Biological Sciences Experts Group, or BSEG, in February of 2007. The BSEG was a cadre of approximately 65 TSSEI-cleared, non-US government, public health, life scientists, veterinarians, physicians, psychologists, and law enforcement disciplines, just to name a few, who dedicated and provided advice and counsel on relevant to the IC's collection, analytic, and ST disciplines. The BSEG physically met six times per year, and members were available to the IC for specific consultations outside of those meetings. Annual evaluations of the BSEG's utility to the IC components demonstrated success in bringing outside expertise into the IC's mission. These actions address the Blue Panel's recommendation 6B. As the enhanced efforts at collection and analysis bore fruit, we worked with the National Security Council in 2009 to establish the Senior Executive Biointelligence Briefing Series, or CBIBS, a monthly meeting of Assistant Secretary level and above individuals from over 19 departments and agencies devoted to countering biological threats. Seniors from multiple agencies from the Departments of Health and Human Services, including ASPR, NIH, CDC, FDA, Departments of Agriculture, Defense, State, and Commerce, to name a few, were briefed at the TSSCI level and above by analysts from the IC on counterproliferation, counterterrorism, and counterintelligence biological threats. This forum provided a direct exchange by, with, by which the consumers of biological threat information could ask questions of the analysts, exchange views on the intelligence based upon their department's mission with fellow seniors, and analysts could better appreciate the perspectives of their products' readers. These actions address the Blue Ribbon Panel's recommendation 6D. Implementation of the strategy was also having an impact on intelligence collection against BW. Prior to the implementation of the strategy, BW intelligence collection was a priority only in name. Significantly greater efforts were being put into other intelligence topics due to a variety of reasons, including the comparative difficulty of collection against BW, the greater interests of senior policymakers on other topics, and the inertia of long-standing collection platforms focused on non-BW issues. The strategy enabled this to change. 
the funding from the CounterBW program enabled novel collection platforms. This, combined with more regular requests for information on BW issues from seniors across departments and agencies, raised the profile of BW intelligence collection, more effectively incentivizing the intelligence cycle and the collection agencies to leverage their finite resources against these difficult topics. By 2011, the strategy was being implemented. Milestones were being met, and we decided to update the strategy in 2011 version to refine objectives and advance targeting efforts. I would state that at that time, progress was being made, and we had hope. Unfortunately, a confluence of circumstances beginning in 2013 started to bring down the enterprise we were trying to build. In April 2013, I was returned to the White House on the National Security Council Preparedness Directorate to address the novel strain of influenza that was circulating in China. Later that year, the CIA's counter-BW program manager retired after a long and distinguished career. And little did we know that at that time, in FY 2014, the entire budget that we had worked so hard to acquire would be swept into other projects within the CIA. By the beginning of 2015, the counter-BW program would be at a budget level equal to when it was implemented in 2004. What did this mean? This meant that innovative collection methods came to a grinding halt. Analytic production on BW targets across the CP, CT, CI, and health security disciplines plummeted and has remained at all-time lows. Multi-sectoral and IC non-Title 50 collaborations were terminated. Programs to link non-US government multidisciplinary experts with the IC officers, such as Biochem 2020 and BSEG, became in name only. The CBEBS forum last met in late 2015. And at the same time, a decision by the Defense Intelligence Agency to enact a 50% reduction in force, 50% reduction in budget to the National Center for Medical Intelligence irreparably diminished the capabilities of the only IC entity devoted to medical intelligence. The US government has never recovered from the damage dealt to the counter-BW program from FY 2014 onward. Thus is the defense that I offer you for my open hypothesis that there is virtually no biodefense intelligence enterprise anymore. If I could offer one closing comment or call to action, while noting that any new effort will effectively be starting from scratch once again, we did it once. We have a blueprint for success, and we have painful lessons learned for how to develop an effective counter-BW intelligence enterprise, but this time it must be sustained with leadership empowered with authority and resources commensurate to this gravest of threats. Thank you for this opportunity, and I would try to address any questions that you have. Uh, Dr. Kurt, thanks very much for uh, telling us that story. That is um, uh, not only very helpful, but it's very provocative, and uh, hopefully uh, together we can respond. I wonder if we should start where we normally end the, the questions and ask Ken if he'd like to begin. Also, just want to make sure you're paying attention. Just make sure I'm awake. Yeah, I'm, 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 after Dr. Ling, I'm going to be awake for three days. Um, so I just want to just start off where you ended up. Um, you said you have a blueprint. Um, have, 
has anybody, you know, let's assume that we can marshal the forces to try to re-energize that effort. Looking back at what you did, have you done an after action thinking, hmm, next time we do it, we do it differently? Is it, we have a little, some lessons learned here? We certainly have. Share those with us either today or in the future if we're going to make recommendations along these lines. Absolutely happy to. You can't imagine how this has haunted several of us who helped that because I, personally, I, you know, I take it as a failure. Anything that is established that does not sustain or is not sustained by a person, I always thought, you know, if I get hit by a bus, it should live on. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that this was so easily destroyed simply by moving the budget. Uh, was shocking to all of us. And that is why the argument for creating um, an entity that has both the authority and the budget. I will say, we tried three times to create a NIM, and three times we were told no. The variety of reasons. One, we were told that you'd have to have a NIM for nuclear, you'd have to have a NIM for missile, you'd have to have a NIM for chem. It did not equal. We were told the second time that basically S&T covered the issue. The third time we were told that there are 12 NIMS, there cannot be a 13th. Mm -hmm. so there, are, there are many other lessons that could be shared in non-open forums. Okay. <laughs> we'll follow up with you on those. Jim? Well, the question I was going to ask was, what you, how you analyzed the, the motivations for the deconstruction, but uh, based on your best answer, uh, I assume that not to be told here, is that right? I mean, what, what's your analysis of, of why this fell apart and why it was, I mean, it's hard to believe it was, you know, malintent, so it was, what, what was the driving force? I agree with you completely. My, my answer would be neglect. When you looked at the, I served under. And it came as transition into administration, right? It was a change of administration. Is that what happened? Uh, no, I, actually in 2013, 2014, it, it, it wasn't. Um, so no, it actually came, so for example, the directors under which I served in NCPC cared deeply about each one of the issues that were under counterproliferation. So having someone not only who was, you know, your strong advocate to the DNI, but to the external face of the entire community was incredibly powerful. Um, that changed in later years. And the thing that I think that came as the greatest surprise was that when we had fought so hard for the budget, and that the budget was being managed out of the program and there was a phenomenal working relationship where DNI, we set the policy and standards and then the program was actually administered across the community through a central effort, that that worked, but only as long as those entities were in place. Um, it, it, I think all of us were surprised by how easily the budget, which was not fenced, became uh, poached. And basically, in a single budget year, it just was swept away. So, it's a pretty sobering assessment, Dr. Kerr. Thank you very much for it, uh, uh, Dr. McGill. In your testimony, you talked about uh, the optimum uh, biodefense uh, intelligence analyst would be a product of a 
a system of systems. I mean, if you really wanted it at all, and I guess I'm just kind of the curious as to how we build out that capacity because we talk about you need to understand the threat, you need to understand the actors, you need to understand the science. I mean, there's so much, but there's no school that gives you those that multiple disciplinary system of systems integration. So, what's the foundation for it? Intelligence analysis? Yeah, so is I it science? What is it? Yes, Governor. I think the, I think the key is the analyst. The analyst is the hub. The experts come from the disciplines. The analyst has the ability to translate that information that comes from the disciplinary experts and helps brings the disciplinary experts together to talk about where the threat areas are. But there's no single discipline that's going to understand right. the other's discipline, as you actually talked about. What you have to do is bring the folks together and have them work as a team to map out the system, to figure out within this discipline area, where are our gaps? Are they science gaps or are they intelligence gaps on a target? And then you can, from that, using the analysts, using their structured analytical techniques and designs for building out uh, ability to seek information, go out and find it. One of the big areas that is coming out today that we need an analyst is data science. Everything that we're teaching now at Mercyhurst is about teaching the analyst to understand data, use tools to process information, determine what the variables are, find out where you collect information on the variables, and eventually be able to analyze that information to get some bit of risk that you can give to a decision maker for decision so they can understand the risk and understand where to apply resources because we're always limited on resources. You know, obviously, I'm very, very familiar with the work you do. I'm just kind of curious as a matter of course instruction, do you embed any uh, bioterrorism uh, tabletops, any bioterrorism scenarios into your, uh, in your education, either an undergraduate or graduate level? At the under, as a tool? Yes, I mean, at the undergraduate and graduate yeah. level, we have courses in um, WMD okay, that are treated as a, as a triumvirate. They're yeah. not individually yeah. focused. I'm very familiar with many of your graduates who either work for alphabet agencies or the private sector. Get a job as soon as you leave. Well done. Um, I made an inquiry. Uh, thank you for referring to this. We're very proud of the document. Obviously, you and your colleagues on the panel have read it. Um, the sobering narrative we got from Dr. Kerr and, and your testimony, do you care to offer an opinion as to why, since this has been widely distributed, widely read, highly praised, the White House is all over it, we got a strategy, is there an inertia is in, in, the, in the DNI to move in this direction? Are they opposed? An opinion. Are they opposed to it? Do they think they have it covered? I mean, from your perspective, if you care to share that opinion, what do you, what, what do you think of it? What's going on there? Well, the director for uh, biodefense strategy at the DNI is a GS-15 level position, and it is vacant. Say again? It's vacant. It's a vacant position. So uh, I, I think that, Governor, you're, you're – um, your assessment is right. It has to do with what Dr. Kerr, I'll just say Dr. Kerr did a great job uh, uh, talking about what happened a few years ago. It's leadership. It's having a champion for bio, for biodefense and, and biointelligence at the DNI level. Uh, separating biointelligence and, and 
biodefense out from um, from WMD, from the chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear disciplines is very difficult because, as you say, as Dr. Kerr so aptly put it, then you have to have an in for nuclear and an in for chem and an in for, you know. Um, bio is different. It has a different impact to our people. It has a different way of addressing the solution. It is... Uh, it is multidisciplinary. It involves universities, think tanks. Uh, it involves cattlemen. It involves <laughs> the Department of Agriculture. It involves pharmaceutical companies. It involves uh, our allies um, and anyone who can put that all together and lead from the front. Uh, from the director of national intelligence has got to be a super incredible person, and unfortunately, that champion retired. To the, the, to the DNI. Hmm? Is that what you mean? Pay a visit to the DNI. Yeah. It's a good idea. Another former senator, yeah. Senator Daschle. Well, thank you, each of you, for your fantastic uh, insights and testimony. I, I guess I would just like to ask, uh, as we end this day, and think about the role of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel and, and our hope that we could be catalytic in finding that leadership. What advice you'd have for us? How can we help you? How can we help elevate? How can we help find ways with which to create more opportunities for meaningful leadership and direction and implementation of this plan? What What is it we're not doing or what is it you'd like to see us do more of in order to do what we all want to see happen in this country? Could I ask, I'd like to ask each of you if you could give me your, your answer to that question. Senator Daschle, I, th I think it's, it's an interesting question. The intelligence community responds to leaders. They responds to questions from leaders, decision makers. So the priorities that are established across the community are a function of what leaders want information on and where they perceive the risk to be. So if we can articulate the message of what the real threat is, in terms of disease and fighting disease, but also the impact of those things that are man causes, whether it's um, an accident or on purpose. We have to be prepared for that. And if we can articulate the threat to a level that gets the leadership to ask the questions, the money will follow and the work will occur. I mean, that's the way the community works, I think. Thank you very much, Thanks. Dr. Miguel. Dr. Kerr? It's a, thank you, because that's actually a great setup. The intelligence cycle is driven by senior leadership asking questions. And so, you know, the, the entire you know, basis of basically the pyramid starts with the most senior people asking the questions. And those might be the difficult questions. You know, we often talk about that, um, you know, when we were sitting in the NSC, you could ask a question in the intelligence community. If they have the answer, they had one of the most robust mechanisms of gathering the information, putting it together, synthesizing it, and returning it to the customer. If they didn't, depending on where you fell in that seniority, the collection apps apparatus was activated in order to go get those questions. And so, you know, that entire process by your panel making the recommendations that there needs to be improvements in that entire cycle to basically re-energize it again with the resources to be able to answer the questions 
has been very powerful to date. And so it's now, again, reminding the senior leadership that this is a real and present eminent threat. And that's something that I don't think people who live outside of the community think about day in and day out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ms. Whaley? I would say um, one of the things that the, uh, the, the Blue Ribbon Study Panel talks about throughout all of its recommendations is public awareness. Uh, the leadership piece of this is, is paramount in all of these recommendations and, and obvious by the panel that we have assembled here. There's an incredible interest in this. Um, but public awareness and making our leaders understand what that, what that threat is, as Dr. Kerr was saying, um, understanding what that threat is and how it can harm us. What is the duty to warn? What is the government's mission and role, the duty to warn our critical infrastructure? For example, the H1N7 virus, um, World Health Organization, I think it has a 40% death rate. The World Health Organization, um, the agreement is that uh, if you have solutions or studies uh, that you are um, responsible for identifying those solutions and studies, and telling the other members of the World Health Organization. And what if one of those countries has a solution, has a remedy for H1N7 and refuses to share it? Introducing a vulnerability globally, protecting their people, but no one else. The duty to warn, the public awareness that this is a real threat to the United States. And what are we doing about it? Where's the leadership? How do we make it an enterprise again, a community? looking for a solution. And this panel is very important. Uh, my recommendation or my personal opinion would be uh, I offer that doing some more time and spending some shoe leather on Capitol Hill and making folks aware so that our people know. Thank you. Thank you all. So let me pick up on that um, and ask to, to what extent um, the biological threat uh, from your observation seems to be um, on the minds of the members of the uh, Intel Committee that, that you serve? So um, the members of the Senate Intelligence Committee have had a number of briefings behind closed doors. Yeah. And um, uh, some of the members uh, walk away quite scared. Um, they're very concerned about where we are with our ability to react to a biological threat. Um, and that we know where those threats are coming from and that we know what the vulnerabilities are of our people. Uh, they're also very concerned about the amount of attention that's being spent and the amount of money that's directed towards solution. So... In other words, not enough. Not enough. Right. And, and also, the missions and roles aren't clearly defined. Uh, their leaders, the, the leaders in the intelligence community now, of course, this... This problem extends well beyond the intelligence community, but the intelligence community's job is to understand the threat, understand our vulnerabilities, and guard against them, make those recommendations to guard against them for the defense piece, right? DOD defense piece, DHS defense piece. And there's intelligence elements in every single one of these enterprise members, but it's not, it's not an enterprise, as Dr. Kerr put it. It's a community, yeah. but it's not an enterprise. So. So how do, we, how do we have better leadership? How do we understand out, up beyond the intelligence community, beyond those members of the intelligence community, 
How, what is our duty to warn? What is the mission and role of the intelligence community? And then how do we share that data so that it's protected? Because it's really sensitive stuff. How do we protect it? But how do we share it at yeah. the same time? <clears throat> right. So um, except for an occasional you know, um, a novel that scares people about the biological threat, it, it's on people's minds. And of course, it was during the anthrax. Uh, and a, uh, in 2001, Senator Daschle was a target of, and uh, now every now and then when something regarding ricin comes up, people do get a bit nervous about it. The uh, um, poisoning of the um, former Russian agent in uh, England got people's attention. It was quite different. It was targeted and all that, but uh, it got people's attention. On, on the question of the infectious disease uh, pandemic, um, you know, the country was in a, a, a state, almost a frozen state for a while about Ebola, and it, it was really quite um, confined. And thank God not much happened, but uh, people are frightened by that. Uh, and of course, when you think about the, what happened in 1918, um, as we said earlier today, that uh, there's good reason for that. So um, there is public concern out there. The question is how to take this threat and make it uh, a priority for the leaders so they they get ready for it. Because as I said to Tim Morrison earlier in the day, a lot of the work that's being done on this is invisible to almost every other American. Until that day comes, God forbid, when there is a biological attack or uh, there is a, a genuine outbreak of infectious disease, then the entire uh, country and world will be focused on it and a lot of fingers will be pointed if we're not ready. I mean, and that's actually how we got to our, as I recall, our recommendation for a national intelligence manager for biological threats, which is if you, well, if you, th if you think about how do you defend against the threat, it's like any other uh, defense effort, uh, and this one particularly, you need good intelligence. And as we um, studied the field, it seemed to us that in this part of it was like most everything else we were seeing. There was, there was actually some uh, work going on. And some of it focused on biological threats, some of it coincidental to intelligence work that was being done, for instance, on the terrorist threat. So you might come across something that suggested that this terrorist group uh, was beginning to get interested in perhaps committing resources to developing uh, biological weapons. But, but there was no coordination and there was not a real uh, awareness across the intelligence community of how much money was being spent or where, where it was being spent. So in some ways consistent at a more targeted level with the suggestion that we made that government-wide this all reported up to a leader, in, that, that in our case of our report, the vice president, we said um, we recommended a national intelligence manager uh, for biological threats in the office of the director of national intelligence to do two things generally. One was to coordinate the biological intelligence activities going on, perhaps in some ways. Part of the coordination would be to say, well, we're not doing enough over here. So, And then the second as part of it was to... to uh, both um, coordinate the expenditure of money, but then, if necessary, advocate for more money. So 
I, I, I think I've heard the drift of what you all said, but I, I'm curious as to whether every. I'm curious about the the attitude, the opinion you have about this idea of a national intelligence manager for biological threats. Is it a good idea? Is it the way to answer some of the problems you've described and we've described? Uh, Ms. Riley, do you want to start? I think it's a good. I, I think it's a good idea. Um, I think we got to put some meat on the bones on what the NIMS uh, qualifications would be, and then yeah. what that NIMS outreach would be to the rest of the community which it serves. Right. So this isn't just an, an intel problem. Right. This is also a reaction problem. The Department of Agriculture, Health and Human Services, which doesn't even have an intelligence arm, they're thinking about it, but they don't even have one. Um, universities, how does this NIM, how does this person reach out to the rest of the community? Because the, all of those solutions aren't in the intelligence community. They're out there. They're in the pharmaceutical right. companies. They're in the in the, in the universities. Um, uh, Duncan brought up uh, the importance of good analytics, big data. You know, Google, Amazon, bring them in too. Um, but that person is going to be able to reach out into the entire community. Intelligence is a supporting role, right? It supports. You don't have a you know, Secretary of Intelligence. You know, it's a supporting role to every single one of the departments, bureaus, and agencies in the in the U.S. government. So, preventative measures, as as you brought up, Mr. Winston, this is very important. And understanding what those preventative measures are, without being a chicken little and saying the sky is falling and everybody's going to sure. die of anthrax, you know, um, or Ebola, uh, but we have a, a resolute, mature, and very sober approach to what defense, biodefense really is and what could really harm us. That NIM is critical. You know, having that central point inside the intelligence community is critical, but that person has got to be able to reach out outside the intelligence community. So should they reside inside the executive office of the president? Should they be in the director of national intelligence? You know, where that position is something that maybe we should, we should chat about. Okay, that's great. Dean McGill, how, how do you feel about the idea? So I think being, if it's properly resourced and properly led, we have the leadership that wants that, right. uh, then it makes perfect sense because the NIM allows you to develop your discrete intelligence topic and allows you to appropriate the resources and requirements across the various components within the community. What's interesting today, are there are a number of bioactivities in the community, they exist everywhere. The problem is they're dis in the discrete intelligence in the intelligence right. community, and they're, but they're discrete. Right. They're serving a specific purpose for a specific customer. They're not being coordinated. Somebody has to coordinate that for, to, to make it effectively a discrete intelligence topic. And that's where you have to go in the end, I think. But it takes the leader to ask the question. Sure. You have to have the question. Dr. Kerr? I would agree with everything that has been said thus far. And in the current Office of the Director of National Intelligence structure, the authorities resident in the NIM are the capabilities that are required in terms of being able to mobilize, coordinate, and communicate between the collection, analytic, and S&T capabilities. I could not agree more, though, that in terms of any other discipline that I can think of over which currently the NIMS have dominion, bio is the one where even the United States government does not have the wealth of expertise that is required to completely assess both risk and threat. The intelligence community is responsible for that threat component. And so having someone who is able to marshal the capabilities, assets, and resources of the intelligence community while being able to leverage the outside expertise is absolutely critical. 
Okay, that's great. You know, Governor Rich said uh, maybe we should go uh, go see um, uh, Dan Coates, our friend at, at the DNI, which is, I think, a good idea. And then maybe we should go and see our friends on Senate Intel. Uh, this can be done by order of the, of the DNI, uh, but uh, I don't think we need legislation. But maybe uh, we'll come so away let from. Let it be written, so let it be done. That would exactly. Be good. That's enough. But if maybe Dan, maybe Dan Coates would like it to be in legislation. Then we'll come and see. Is there an Intel authorization uh, bill? Because do you do it every year? Yes, sir. You do, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Well, we might come and see you. <laughs> okay. Other. Uh, th this has been a great panel, really. Great day. Yeah, and a great day. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well Mr. Chairman. Final, final, any uh, comments? Yes, George. Yes, I'd like to build on something that uh, Ms. Riley raised, where it's another example of a sleep at the switch. This issue of foreign access to genetic information on people in this country. Apart from the security of the databases, whether it be in healthcare or 23andMe and Ancestry.com, the following obviously is an unclassified comment. All this information is available in the public literature, and that is the question of, the, of a Chinese company called iCarbonX. iCarbonX is a consortium of $600 million invested in it by uh, individuals who have known association with the Chinese government and the PLA. The head of that consortium is a very gifted geneticist who actually built the Beijing uh, Genome Institute, which is the largest genome sequencing capability in the world. The colloquialism is if it moves, they sequence it. So that's everything from microorganisms to us. But they have invested in buying up a number of companies all of which are related to either profiling the antibodies which are present in the bloodstream of Americans or the technology for measuring those antibodies in the bloodstream of Americans. But most important, quite remarkably, and in my opinion, unethically, patients like me, which was an altruistic foundation where individuals with rare genetic diseases donated their genetic information for the purposes of advancing medical research, iCarbon X paid patients like me $100 million for access to, to the records on 600,000 Americans with rare genetic disorders. And I, I would submit that that is only the ice, tip of the iceberg relative to a very purposeful campaign on the part of the Chinese to actually gain access to the comprehensive genetic information uh, of the American population. Well, that'll keep us up tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yes, Dr. Koresh. Thanks, thanks, George. That, that's really uh, riveting. I hadn't thought about where, where that information goes. They now have information on my wife who went to one of those. We're creating our own vulnerabilities. Pardon? We're creating our own vulnerabilities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and really. actually my question, just align with Dr. Post on that same thing, and um, I do want to first thank you for being honest and sharing this information. Um, the panels have gotten better and better all day long. Well, that was not meant to be disparaging, <laughs> <laughs> but they're all been great. Um, but thank you, and Chief Rod, thanks for sharing your adenovirus with us too. Um, um, and mentioning cows and, and chickens, that's always a great thing. Um, 
because this group certainly wants to pull that together. So, and I think, you know, we're talking a lot about catching up now, you know, as we're doing, talking about a lot of catch up here, um, but I want to kind of move us a little forward thinking, and just as Dr. Post was saying, um, last week uh, I was at uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Grand Challenges, and they paid for 1,200 scientists to come in and announced a big initiative with the Chan Zuckerberg Center, which is out at uh, UC San Francisco, offering money and a free genetic sequencer to everybody who wants one, um, as long as you share all your genetic findings on microbes and humans from around the world with them, and they'll do the analysis for free, and they'll store all the data for free, and when asked what the business model, they said, oh, it's just for human well-being and goodness, just like Facebook is to make friends, um, that business model. Um, and so that's going forward. I mean, CRISPR-Cas9 is, you know, now we're years old and we're trying to deal with that. So I'm, my question to you is, what's our forward thinking on some of this bioinformatics as a bio-threat, really, is I think where we're going on this. So. Where do you, what, what should we be Again, doing it's there? public awareness. It's the second and third order effects of things like this that, uh, that affect our population. So you can buy a, um, a gene editing tool on the internet for like $90 now. Um, so you can do it in, at home in your kitchen, um, modify genes in mice or a plant or whatever, whatever you like. Uh, it's pretty scary, isn't it? Um, the fact that uh, you know folks are, are are so you know they'll go to a hospital, and you know they'll have blood drawn, and there's a little box at the bottom, very fine print that says, "Would you like your DNA shared with uh, for research, for medical research?" And everyone checks that block, and nobody has any idea where their DNA is going. And you know, in the intelligence community, we talk about obfuscation of of data. How do you obfuscate DNA? It, it, it's Mrs. Fields' recipes to her cookies. I mean, you can't obfuscate it. It is your DNA. So you can uh, extract a name, but you're still going to be able to find out who that person is. It, it's, you, everyone is unique. There's no way to obfuscate it. Everyone is unique. So as we introduce these vulnerabilities, just uh, interest in our, in our own well-being center and our naive, I'll say naive, uh, interest in medical research and checking blocks, and yes, of course, and I fell for it too, you know. My father was a Johns Hopkins and he had leukemia and he was dying and I would do anything to save him. Anything, anything, anything. Cut off my arms and legs, whatever, just save them. Checking blocks all over the place. Use my DNA for whatever you want. I fell for it too, but I didn't know. So the public awareness piece of it, how do we prevent that? How do we protect our human data? How do we understand, you know, put the warning on the side of the cigarettes. Warning, Surgeon General has determined that the Chinese could get access to all of your genetic makeup and start editing the entire American population. Um, yeah, uh, big fear. <laughs> uh, that's the next bipartisan study panel <laughs> that will be created. Other, other, a final, uh, Governor Rich, or anybody else on the? Scooter. Yes, Scooter, Libby.
told it wasn't functioning. Sir, I'd, I'd say it's probably... That's uh, the chairman editing me out. Which is, uh... <laughs> no, that, that was the Russian embassy editing you. <laughs> the, the interesting piece to this puzzle is it's it, when you start looking at the difference between nuclear weapons and bioweapons, it has to do a lot with the way you look for your keys in the parking lot at night when you lose them. Where do we all look? We look under the lights because we can see it. So we can see the nuclear threat. We can measure it. We can we can define it. It's measurable. The bio threat is much much more complicated because of the dual use nature, and the and the differences in the in the the dual use in nuclear weapons. There's a physical difference. There gets to be physics that can determine whether it's this or that. It's much more difficult in bioweapons because you don't know when you're doing g editing editing, is that for nefarious purpose or not, and how do, and it's much much smaller. It's much easier to hide. It's, it's much easier to produce, even in an industrial scale, let alone uh, in a laboratory scale. So um, I, I'd have to say, if I had to give you a number, one or two. Mm. Always right. Yes. I mean, Dr. Kerr, you, you you agree? I, I had actually answered your question with a one or two as well. The for all the reasons given the signature for me one of the fundamental differences is that when you look at intent motivation and commitment and by that I mean that you have you know intent is fleeting today I may I intend to do something tomorrow after talking with you all, I may intend to do something else commitment is when I'm actually committing resources in other words I've established a laboratory I have bought reagents I have gathered a pathogen if I'm a scientist bearing an intent, wishing to carry something out, and the ability to actually make that pathogen, I am the delivery of that biological weapon. It's not the same for a nuclear physics reaction. So I, everyone who knew going into my office, they were never allowed to say it's too hard because that's almost a given for our issue. But when you look at breaking down the individual components to try and dissect them, and what is it that the intelligence community can bring to bear on each of those, it becomes a more tractable problem that you can actually des design platforms that address specific aspects to it. So I would still put it the way you phrased your question at, though, a one or two compared to the nuclear issue. Um, biological uh, strategic surprise. So um, President Xi and um, President Putin uh, look at strategy in many, many years out. Uh, President Xi is 300 years out. Uh, Putin is, um, obviously, is, you can leapfrog uh, leadership in Russia, but uh, st the strategic outlook is, you know, 100 years. 
uh, in the United States, our strategic outlook is uh, the next quarterly earnings statement. So um, we have a hard time with strategy. Um, we can dismantle or birth things within a few years, and our ability to hold them champion and lead them uh, is challenged. Um, intent, motivation, and commitment. Uh, President Z's um, One Belt, One Road initiative, or RBI as it's now Belt and Road, Road and Belt initiative, um, identifies how the Chinese are taking a page out of the United States playbook and they're having a global footprint um, everywhere where we're not looking, they're moving in. And this might be a place where we're not looking and they're moving in. I would put it at a one or two. Okay, well, it's always good to end a meeting knowing that there's a lot yet to do. <laughs> anyway, I thank this uh, panel very much, and I thank all of you who have been interested enough in this subject and this threat, really, to stick with us all day. Uh, we'll be back in a month or so. Thank you very much. Go safely.